Hello and welcome to the Backpage Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we are joined by another special guest. Jamie, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Yeah, nice to meet you both again. So I'm Jamie Smith. I'm a principal game designer. I currently work in for People Can Fly at the moment. And I've been in games for about 13 and a half years, uh, kind of at this point. I've worked on a whole bunch of different games, uh, AAA, big titles like The Division, FIFA, Call of Duty, and then some kind of smaller kind of IPs such as uh, Hood Outlaws and Legends. But yeah, and uh, at the moment I'm working at uh, People Can Fly, but unfortunately I can't talk too much more about what projects I'm currently working on. That's what you think. We'll pummel you for answers. (laughs) Okay, so Jamie, you listen to the podcast, so is it is it surreal recording this with us? Is that a bit strange? I mean, me and Matthew, we don't regard ourselves as particularly special or anything. Like, I'm just a, a man, like, literally in his pants in a flat recording a podcast. But um, <laughs> is it like, a, I guess if someone has listened to it before, is it particularly interesting coming on for the first time? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting uh, because you're the you're both the sounds of my morning kind of gym routine and fitness so i get up quite early <laughs> listen to a bunch of podcasts and things so that so that that's that's you know when i hear your voice it makes me sound like i'm on a walk on a morning you know it's the soothing kind of tones uh but yeah it, it's pretty cool oh awesome yeah it's really great to have you so this episode is about things you only realize when you make games so really like that idea for an episode and also sort of ran that past Jamie knowing his amazing variety of experience Jamie did sort of reach out as well and said I'd love to come on the podcast I've been on podcasts before and I have worked at all these games and we've had like a really good response before when we've had Jay Bayliss on the on the podcast and Lucy of course so we wanted to bring in more game dev and guests who understand what the pod's about what the remit is that sort of thing so excited to have you here Jamie so I've got loads of questions here. You have made more notes than any guest we've ever had by about <laughs> about 5,000 times. Like you have so many, you have like basically 3,000 words of notes going on in the margins of our G-Doc. Like, uh, would you care to explain your, your creative process? Uh, pr- pr- probably that I just have a mind like a sieve. So there's there's a whole bunch of things I could kind of bring to the table. It might just remind us uh, than anything else. But at the same time, um, you know, what, one part of being a designer is being kind of meticulous in your approach and your preparation and things. So I think p- put it put it down to those two things. I'm I'm a goldfish, but equally I'm just trying to over prepare. <laughs> Are you a big documentation guy? Do you have like good confluence pages and all that stuff? Yeah, so I, th- I think a big part of it now is you have to assume, especially if you're working on huge games, the the teams or the people that are reading those documents could be all over the world and they don't necessarily want to read, you know, War and Peace or the Bible or something. They, they want information kind of as quickly as possible, as succinctly as possible on things like confluence, you know, the online kind of wiki pages. And uh, yeah, basically just trying to make that as streamlined as possible for people is not the only part of being a designer but definitely it's a big aspect of it <laughs> okay well i'm pleased you applied that process to our um to our podcast <laughs> planning um planning process so yeah i've got a bunch of questions to ask you in section one about um about what it is that you do and and what you kind of like learn from what you what you do and also and then we get to um the second part and that's where jamie has some i would say really good insights on games more generally things like common designs design problems cursed design problems is a category we have to discuss common pitfalls when producing a new ip all stuff that jamie has suggested and we'd love to talk about so um excited to get into it so 
Uh, to start us off then, Jamie, what, what does a principal game designer actually do? Yeah, so th there's a couple of different things. The, the first thing that nobody ever talks about is that realistically on any project, and I should say that everything I'm about to mention is um, from a from a AAA kind of perspective. So again, when you mention Jay Bayliss, other, pe other people you might have on the podcast, they'll have different experiences. But the first thing that nobody tells you is that there's not really such a thing as a game designer in the sense that when you first got a job as a, in games, you're lucky to work on a feature, which will be a small portion of the game. And ideally, you'll be working with somebody kind of more experienced who maybe owns that particular feature. So if you took, say, the Mario games as a really basic example, there will be a designer that kind of owns Mario that will realistically be a principal designer but that person isn't necessarily a game designer. They're just the person that takes care of Mario or they take care of that one piece of the pie uh, kind of thing. So by the time mm. you get to a principal kind of um, role or as you go through the ranks, you know, from an intermediate to a senior to a principal, it's effectively thinking of it as your ownership or what portion of the game do you own kind of grows. Maybe you own Mario and you own Luigi, you know, maybe you own all of the enemy types, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And Peach, and <laughs> don't forget Toad. Um, Chief Toad <laughs> Engineer, yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the way I kind of look at it is um, really there's only one game designer on the project and that's the creative director, you know, the top person, the Hideo Kojimas and things. They're, they're the people that have the vision for what the game is going to be. They're looking at it holistically, but most designers are just representative of a portion of the game. And again, it's just your responsibility, your autonomy over that. And then what those people do, uh, especially on the design side, is we're basically working with mixed discipline teams. So this is artists, animators, programmers, you know, every single discipline, including writers, yeah, you know, uh, things like that, to bring together features working towards established goals and those goals normally come from a vision and that vision comes from the creative director so you know if it's more like a resident mm -hmm. evil you're trying to make a game that is you know the cautious the player is on the back foot those might be some of the goals for the project okay how do you translate that into you know tasks and features and behaviors in the game um and the other way i'd describe it is a director ultimately is responsible for the you know the why and the what why are we doing this game and what the game is about whereas a designer is more responsible for the how and the who you know how, how are we going to bring this uh -huh. thing to life and who are the people that we need to do it right okay that's interesting does that ever get mixed up where the vision changes and and people who are below the creative director get to inform how that changes or is it always like there is always that delineation between you know the creative director owns this and you and you own this part of it yeah, um, generally speaking, it's coming from the creative director in terms of where he wants to go with it. Well, he or she wants to go with the game and know what direction they want to take. But but sometimes a game could be, maybe this is something for later in the podcast, but I'll touch upon it now. A game could be, you know, kind of bottom up or top down. And what I mean by that is if it's a bottom up process, it might be a particular mechanic in the game that you build around. So for example, Mario again, Mario is a really cool character. That's a bottom-up kind of process. Okay, we've got this really cool character, a really interesting moveset. What do we do with it? Whereas a top-down mm. process would be, hey, we've got this cool idea to put Mario in space. What does that mean? <laughs> you, you know, it's, so it's like it's two right, different right. approaches of you know effectively getting to the same thing. But but to answer the original question is, 
sometimes it could be led by a certain mechanic you know a director wants to take the game in a certain place but actually somebody comes up with a certain feature for that game that kind of takes a life of its own and then maybe that starts to become the new kind of direction right right that's interesting that kind of explains i guess bottom up would be the process they applied to the titanfall 2 campaign for example exactly they already knew what the fundamentals were of titanfall right okay yeah and built it around that okay super interesting uh, appreciate using Mario though as an example that me and Matthew can grasp. Yeah, That's good. <laughs> we, we do appreciate that. Um, so, I, I, so yeah, I'm excited to dig into loads of stuff with you here, Jamie. But I suppose to to go back to the very start, where does your love of games come from? So I'm well coming up to 35 this year. So kind of late 80s, kind of early 90s. Um, the first console that I ever had, and it's it's funny hearing this because uh, I heard Matthew in a. Uh, a podcast this morning saying there's one era that isn't worth playing anymore and it's exactly the era that i was part of <laughs> uh, which was the master system uh, Did I say that? yeah <laughs> it's it, it, it's pretty cool that you know because as i say i've been going through some backlog kind of episodes but it, but it was more about um so i started with the master system and the master system 8-bit kind of era vastly kind of inferior to pretty much everything that came after there's not really that much of a reason to kind of go back to it but my uh, my parents bought that for me when I was maybe four or five at the time, so kind of early 90s. The Mega Drive was probably on the scene at that kind of point. But the cool thing about that was is that everything on the Master System was pretty much dirt cheap. Um, so I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, the... Um, the, the pre-owned kind of episodes and the games court kind of stuff i actually listen to that stuff because i'm a big fan of kind of old game prices and things and i uh right. I, I used to pick up games for a snip on that kind of platform so that's kind of where it all started for me and kind of progressed from there um but hmm. but, but but for some reason i uh, i skipped the kind of 16-bit era entirely so i never owned those consoles mega drive or snes um i used to have family friends neighbors on the road um not not over the river unfortunately but 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 just next door um so i used to borrow their consoles when they used to go on holiday played all the classics you know um streets of rage sonic and things but the next console i had was the um the n64 and that was kind of very slim pickings it was at a time where you only got a game for your birthday and christmas and if you were lucky mm. easter you know it was that kind of uh side of it so easter yeah, if i was lucky wow well, that's great. I mean, I'd much rather an N64 game than another freaking chocolate egg. <laughs> yeah, especially if it was uh, some some cheap chocolate. But I do remember one year I got, uh, I think it was Super Mario 64 and a Super Mario egg, you know, kind of in the same year. And that was that was wow, the present. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, but Oh, man, yeah. you've, had the be- you've had the best life ever by the sounds of it. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have, have a, a, a single memory as good as that from my childhood, getting a, a, a game and an egg to match. That's incredible <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah, good stuff. Sorry, Jamie, carry on. No, no, it's okay. I, I, again, I, I don't want to go through the, the, the kind of the whole history, but the, the reason why I mentioned mm. the N64, and you know, it's a big part of this podcast as well as everything to do with Nintendo at that point, prior to that point i was all in for sega you know i i used to look at kind of nintendo platforms as kind of the 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 kiddie kind of devices i used to have some friends that were slightly older and borrowed their machines and you know some older cousins they were all the the kind of the cooler kids playing sega and it wasn't until n64 that it just it completely flipped the other way for me i i went from not really in enjoying kind of nintendo games or the look of nintendo games um to basically just being enamored by all of the kind of the top 
you know, Super Mario 64, GoldenEye, um, and then all the way down to, you know, the slightly more cursed titles, Space Station, Silicon Valley, and things like that. But that that's my, my fondest kind of memories come from the N64, really. Sure. Uh, so I guess what are your key texts? What, what defines your sensibilities? Because I think what is interesting looking at your career is, as we'll get into, you've worked on... Uh, like such a massive variety of games across different genres, like you say, FIFA and Call of Duty are really other ends of the spectrum. Like, what are what are your key texts? What informs your your sensibilities ultimately as a designer? Yeah, I mean, I mean, these days, I suppose it kind of changes. Maybe since the Souls games have came out, and I've heard you say this in the podcast a few times, is that how many games you know haven't been influenced by that? So more modern times, I do like the grouping together slightly harder kind of challenges you know going back to the uh, master system era you know shadow of the beast whenever anybody says dark souls is a hard game i point them to shadow of the beast and uh that that <laughs> try surviving that for 30 seconds so uh, yeah I, I i quite like those games because they remind me of kind of the older times where it's a bit harder there was an era where i was really into uh, open world games and now i play them quite kind of infrequently only in the sense that I kind of fatigued myself when I was working for Ubisoft because the majority of games at the time Ubisoft were making were open world games and it was mm. it was hard to kind of see beyond what they were kind of doing and the types of things that were influencing you know, other open world games and you know lots of the repetition um, whereas nowadays I'm a big fan of immediacy uh, co-op slightly cursed one I'd, I'd not mentioned to you both at this point but i listened to a whole bunch of episodes on this podcast uh whilst playing earth defense force world brothers you know the minecraft kind of style one <laughs> so played that loads oh, and listening to the podcast uh, i guess that is cursed but fundamentally earth defense force i think we're pro that right matthew on this podcast we think that's i think that's a good a good hang ultimately um, yeah i'm not i'm not gonna make an enemy of the earth defense force <laughs> lot the earth yeah. defense force defense force basically yeah. the edfdf um yeah okay uh, okay fair enough jamie so um i think that's the only way to stomach games court is to uh, play in a video game um to sort of like uh, counteract uh, counteract the effects the psychic damage of games court so sounds good to me but um yeah okay so yeah, so I guess different types of experience. You're much of a, were you much of a Vermintide guy? You play a bit of Dark Tide, that sort of thing. Yeah, any, anything along those lines. You know, pick up and play, drop, drop in and out co-op. I'm a big fan of. Um, I've not really played too much of Dark Tide. Uh, I saw there's been some patches recently that have improved it. But um, when I was at Ubisoft, the, the lunchtime game used to be. I, I mean, I'm talking t- maybe ten years ago now. The lunchtime game was Left 4 Dead One and Two. And then the evening game was not Vermintide, but things to that kind of effect, you know, j- dropping in and out co-op. And then lunchtime was mm. straight back to Left 4 Dead again. So anything that you could pick up and play, 15 to 20 minute kind of sessions. Um, if somebody's underranked, you can kind of pull them along. If somebody's underranked, they can still make meaningful progress. You know, any, any of that kind of stuff is what I'm looking mm. for now. I'm just not a big fan of of games where you have to... It, or, or if I put it differently, when people say things like, this game gets really good after 10 hours I, i'm out you know when people say things like that <laughs> that's fair enough yeah i think i think a lot of people have reached that point i mean matthew at the moment are, both, are all you know we're both trying to get through 
about five different games that are 100 hours long and it is wow. quite um quite exhausting um but yeah i think it that is interesting though that you kind of i guess you want games that respect your time right that sounds like the sort of thing that you're you're seeking these days yeah in, in summary f- f- for sure and you know something i was going to touch upon later on you know from a previous podcast about you know g- games that when you download off game pass it's quite disposable and maybe it's got like an hour to kind of really sat- grab your attention before you just move on to the next game um i wouldn't mm. say i'm kind of dis- as disposable as that but at the same time there is so many games on there you know something like a steam backlog or the, the game pass that if a game's not if if, I, if i've only got you know 40 minutes or an hour to play a game if it's not grabbed me in 10 minutes i'll probably go back to something familiar you know like a vermintide or whatever else it may be yeah i totally get what you mean uh, recently i just um installed lies of p um the pinocchio bloodborne game <laughs> and uh realized that i still have woe long the last game that was a bit like sekiro on my um, xbox still to play and then realized that yes maybe this has not promoted the best habits in me as a player um so what led to uh, games as a career for you jamie yeah so um so i'm from the the northeast and th- there's kind of hubs around the uk for games you know leamington spa guildford you know brighton kind of more recently and uh, historically, the Northeast has had uh, um, a lot of the old kind of manufacturers like, you know, uh, Atomic Planet, Reflections, you know, Midway had a base up here, um, Acclaim did at, at one point. And most of the people that were from those companies, some some are still around, some are now defunct, but they became kind of lecturers at local universities or they did kind of, you know, local kind of programs. And uh, Teesside at the time, so I'm, again, I'm from the Northeast, so Teesside University had a games course at the time which was called creative visualization and the first time i'd ever come across that course it was 16 and uh again slightly cursed but my my mother had put me on some kind of summer school for two weeks so we had a six-week break in the summer it was a summer school at teesside university where you could see basically the, the the creative or emerging kind of technologies which at the time was a giant room which was like a vr lab of them showing how they were using computers to basically make aeroplanes and you know to demo them landing into airports making 3d models and things like that and uh, huh. the combination of those two things the the awareness of a local university the outreach of you know ex-developers kind of in the area and then also reading games magazines like games master and you know n64 magazine they used to have cut out sections that would say you know here's what you need to do to become a game designer um so that you know the three things kind of coalesced uh, kind of together and then at the time you know i used to play a lot of football games and i used to just do things like editing kind of the values i used to play you know a lot what you might call now is modding so basically things that are changing player values you know upsetting the balance of the game um if you were playing something like you know diddy kong racing i used to get so good at that game that i would make my own rules on my own limitations so effectively that's what a designer's <laughs> doing is you know making their own fun house rules kind of thing and uh yeah i went to college did you ever make uh, diddy kong racing fun well <laughs> yeah I, I was waiting for that uh it's it, it's 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 one of my favorites uh unfortunately to, to, to bring up here but uh yeah i, I did enjoy it but the, for sure the, the final third of that game is is pretty painful are you a big like 1v4 kind of player jamie did you like evolve for example were you into that sort of game um not not so much actually i mean i've played the predator kind of hunting grounds i've played a bit of evolve um you know one game that i did work on which was hood you know that's a more of a 4v4 but with 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 almost like a third team um i I like the idea of those games but in practice they never quite work out the way that you might you might expect them to 
but but even when we used to play maybe house rules of you know maybe football games or um, you know time splitters another uh, uh, another back page cursed game there uh, but yeah time splitters. I like I like time splitters it's Matthew who doesn't like time splitters <laughs> yeah, it's I'm, only, yeah, yeah. I'm all in on time splitters I have no that's, beef that's with, one of my bad takes <laughs> I have no beef with David Doak to be uh, to be clear um, but yeah sorry Jamie continue no that, that that's great I mean just on that point you know you said about kind of you know games where it's one versus four that's the type of thing we would do on um you know maybe even on halo as well you used to do it on xbox what one of us was really good with the sniper rifle okay this round here's some restrictions that are in place upon you because you're so good at the game or we three can stay on the ground in the warthogs you have to stay up high and try and kill us within you know five minutes or something so that that's kind of oh, nice. you know, that's like the nuggets of the design kind of side of it and uh i went to a, a college course and met a couple of friends there that be basically been lifelong friends since uh, my two friends kelly and kyle and between the three of us we did a, a games course. Sorry, we didn't do a games course. We did a design course that led to games, and that games course went on to the Teesside University. And then I basically got a job straight from that in what was a, a Dragon's Den a scenario where there was four people on the opposite side of the table. I had to do a pitch about a game idea. Um, at least three of those four tore it to shreds um you know for a eight you know 21 year old at the time you know their first time kind of showing off an idea and the one person that took pity on me is the person that gave me my first job and uh, and that was at ubisoft and i've been in games pretty much ever since wow Wow. that's quite exciting what was the um the game you pitched if you don't mind me asking yeah it's not a problem um it's 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 not a sore point so i used to like um i still like fighting games you know the one-on-one street fighter mortal Kombat. so the uh the, the pitch itself was just for a game where it didn't matter how many times you hit somebody it just mattered where you hit them so let's say in the head does more damage than in the body and in the body does more damage than the legs and so on um and there was Mm. there was a couple of extra ideas on top of that that they they thought was kind of straying too far away of what was popular with the genre at the time and uh one of the people that was on the opposite side of the table was from idos at the time where they were kind of at their peak. I think it was kind of Hitman, you know, Lara Croft and things like that were kind of coming out. And uh, I've heard since that at that time, IDOS were pretty hardcore in terms of their feedback. You know, if there was one place you didn't want to be to get harsh feedback, it was them. And uh, yeah, one of those four was on the panel (laughs) and he didn't like their idea. He was just like, needs more tombs, mate. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, it didn't stop uh, Angel of Darkness or Deus Ex Invisible yeah, War from... Yeah, that's what you uh, should have said. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, burning your bridges before you've even started. Um, that's that's interesting. It's funny, were you much of a Fight Night guy? Because Fight Night kind of lives by those principles, really. It's sort of like a more realistic fighting game where obviously hitting the head does more damage to the body. Was that something you played at all? Yeah, I tried that. I think it was Fight Night 3 I played quite a bit of. And then they did, was it Champion? And I think Champion had the story. And I think I kind of dropped mm. out at that point. But I do remember that that used to be a really cool game but i think it was a little awkward to play because you had to do motions with the right stick and the left stick and sometimes you would get the punch that you wanted sometimes you wouldn't but yeah i used to play that stuff you know ready to rumble a bunch of others but yeah the the fight night series was was pretty good your first job is working at ubisoft reflections right on driver san francisco as a junior designer um driver san francisco of course being a jeremy peel classic and what was that what was that like for you yeah, so I, I came in towards the tail end of the project. So the project itself maybe was, you know, f- five or six years long, which which was very long at the time. I mean, that that's pretty much the standard these days. Um, 
But for four years, um, the project had been in development. I joined in production, and I was there for the last 18 months, of which I would just say it was not not chaos but just controlled chaos to try and get you know the the game to kind of light um they had some brilliant multiplayer that was kind of set up at the time they had a story that was pretty cool but you know um if you've seen the story since it's about a a character that goes into a coma that was um almost like the the, the top in for the bottom up method we mentioned earlier and the bottom up method was it had a shift mechanic which was you could zap out of a car and teleport into any other car kind of in the world. And this was in a time before GTA V uh, kind of came out where you could teleport between the multiple characters. And it was mm. it was basically just um, effectively adding more content to the game was what we did for the last 18 months. They had a big open world, they had a story, but not a lot of reason to kind of stick around. So I was part of the teams that were... Uh, balancing the chase missions, introducing new kind of races to the game. Uh, there's a big camera system that they use to kind of showcase shots of the city. Um, my first kind of touch point with achievements, which is almost like a, a rite of passage for most designers, you know, to setting up a trophy or achievement set. Um, but yeah, it was it was pretty cool, huh. but, but but really busy. <laughs> yeah, I got to say actually that uh, Driver San Francisco might be the most bottom-up game of all time in terms of how <laughs> obvious it is to the player that that's how it was made. Um, not not that's, that's uh, you know praise rather than criticism, but um, no, that's really cool. Um, that's uh, that's an exciting thing to come into. So uh, you then worked on the crew, right? So what sort of elements matter when you're designing a game where you um, you control cars rather than people? Because you know a lot of your later games do involve. Con- you know controlling people rather than vehicles so i guess like what what were the challenges of working on that one yeah so th- this was at the, the the tail end of that era where you kind of had the uh the late maybe ps2 up to the early ps4 kind of era was probably some of the best driving games that you could kind of get and the crew was coming out from the team that was um uh, they did test li- test drive unlimited so they had this really cool network feature that each car had a bubble and an invisible bubble that if you intersected with another player, that bubble acted like a portable kind of server. So you would you would blend into other players. And that's basically where the pain starts in terms of things that you have to consider, <laughs> um, especially in a multiplayer game. Because if, if a player can just appear in your session, how do you kind of manage that? Imagine if I was driving along and I'm coming to the finish line and let's say Matthew appears in my game on the finish line and blocks me from kind of winning the race, that that would not be a particularly satisfying thing to kind of consider. So they had to manage mission-based um, kind of portability, so players that could join you pre-mission versus the open world. Um, griefing, as I said earlier, you can just push other cars kind of into the sea, so you have to manage kind of collisions between other players. You've also got the the size of the kind of the threats in the world as well. So you've got different enemy uh, different enemy cars, which could be the police, for example. In this case, um, in some games, the Need for Speed games, for example, will make the police cars much bigger than the player's car, because in your rear view mirror, with perspective, that car will be a tiny dot. So they'll artificially increase the size of the car. So that's another good one. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's just lots of little things like that. And then the classic kind of sensation of speed stuff. Most really fast driving games will use horizontals. So anything that is street lights that kind of cross the road, um, 
ropes, you know, like telephone wires and things like that. Um, if you if you watch the Formula One and you go in kind of that tunnel in Monaco, anything with kind of, you know, pillared kind of barriers, th- these are things that just create the sensation of speed. But a lot of people probably don't consider what happens in a multiplayer scenario a lot of the time. So that was Ivory Tower leading that one. Does that mean that you went from your first project driver being uh, developed in-house where you're working to basically supporting another studio is that how that worked that's exactly right yeah so driver san francisco was a reflection owned and a reflection kind of worked on you know that they're considered kind of the lead studio on that project and then ubisoft not just for ivory tower but for other studios would have a project that they would lead on and then other studios would support so ivory tower were leading on the crew They'd just been bought in from, um, I think at the time they were an external studio and then Ubisoft Ubisoft bought them in-house. They'd just come off working mm. on Test Drive and then the idea was was to effectively make Ubisoft's version of Test Drive with Reflections and some other studios helping them out. Right, that makes sense. Was that intimidating to you as a young designer having to go from working on a project, I guess, where everyone leading it was in the building where you worked, presumably, to you know, it's being made in France and you're helping out kind of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think at the time, the, the studio itself became a multi-project studio. So the the crew was one of the projects. Uh, Watch Dogs was another project. So this was before Watch Dogs was kind of announced. And then also Just Dance was another project that they had a yearly kind of refresh of the title, which was really good in terms of it not only monetizing, but it was a really strong kind of uh, casual audience, especially on the Wii and things like that. And mm. some part of it was kind of a 50-50, I would say, less 50-50 in terms of the lead support um, but more 50-50 in terms of some people just wanted to work on Driver forever and some people never wanted to work on the Driver franchise again. So, you know, opening the door <laughs> to, you know, a, a quick turnaround project after a six-year project and you can go work on Just Dance for 12 months and get another credit on your CV is pretty appealing to people and equally, you know, Ubisoft's ne- next big franchise, which at the time was Watch Dogs, you can go work on effectively Ubisoft's, you know, Grand Theft Auto. That's the way they were kind of pitching it at the time. So, yeah, it just depended right. on what people's disposition was. I see in my podcast pad here, I've wrote, you also worked on The Division, a pretty massive, and then the sentence just ends. That's why, <laughs> that's why I don't work massive for The Rigger, studio. basically. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I was uh, I was actually a really big fan of The Division. It took me a few years, but um, I, I came to it when the second one came out and actually found that, that world and that game very um, very compelling and really well done. I thought it was going to be um, Tom Clancy sort of like gumph, and then it was actually, I thought it had um, quite a lot of layers to it and the gunplay was really good and the world was pretty amazing. So that's one of your credits too jamie what's the story with you working on that so yeah this was at the tail end of the the crew and at the time there wasn't really such a thing as a looter shooter i mean it's it's kind of every other game now seems to have some kind of loot or resource kind of a a component in it but at that time you had diablo 3 had just came to the consoles destiny was in development and maybe came out during the time of the division and there was no such thing as kind of loot systems on consoles, kind of really. And the idea was mm. was to bring a a realistic kind of shooter, which again is totally different to something like Borderlands. You know, Borderlands was pretty much the only thing on the market at the time. Um, a high fidelity, realistic shooter. You know, in in the vein of Call of Duty. Obviously, it's not it's not really like Call of Duty, but that's the idea. Mm. You can squad up drop in and out have a fun time upgrade your weapons and it's kind of future tech so 
you know, pretty much anything goes. Um, and that was basically at the end of the crew, they said we'd be working with Massive. So that that's a, a, a pretty massive, the end of that sentence, ma- Massive, the studio <laughs> uh, in, in Sweden. So they, they were pretty cool at the time. They were looking to basically make their first console game because they'd never made a console game before that point. And it was a big refresh mm. in that team. So we got kind of brought on to kind of help out um, not only you know, bring the project to the fore because a bunch of people had worked on Watch Dogs, you know, another third-person Ubisoft game, but, uh, you know, experiencing the gunplay, a lot of the cars in the world, for example, uh, because Driver San Francisco had really good car artists, you know, vehicle artists and, you know, high-fidelity, things like that. They got brought on to basically do a lot of the background kind of clutter, you know, the the burnt-out cars and things like that in the world. So... Um, they, they use the expertise in kind of different ways. I love the idea of like you've mastered moving cars. Now apply that art Broken. to just creating all these these fucking busted motors. That's great. <laughs> uh, so something I was curious about, Jamie, is part of that role. Right, you went over to Massive quite quite frequently. Is that right? So uh, at that point, were you were your was your role changing? Were you becoming more senior? What was that that like for you? Yeah, so by that time, I was a, a game designer. So again, going back to that kind of tier earlier, you've got junior, kind of intermediate, and then senior. So at the time, I was kind of approaching senior designer, and this was um, to go work on the loot system for the division. So the, the, the kind of the foundation, the core of that system didn't, didn't exist before I joined the project. I was involved in that kind of side of it, and we had to have regular trips over to Sweden, uh, which is in Malmö, Sweden, which at the time has grown into its own kind of game hub in itself. But Massive were a huge kind of building by the river, you know, maybe three, four, five hundred people uh, kind of strong. And we would be going there to basically go work with their, you know, their progression teams, you know, how the character kind of progresses in the game, their enemy teams, you know, what the enemy behaviors do and how does the AI function. And then also their weapon teams as well. So, you know, what kind of upgrades are you going to get? What are the unlocks for the weapons? Because all of these things directly tied into the loot system, which is what I was part of. Super interesting to be designing a game like this in parallel to Destiny as well. I guess Destiny rolled around just over a year before The Division came out. So, uh, yeah, that must have been quite the process, figuring that stuff out on the fly. What's that like when you see something come out which is in the same space that you're working in and has obviously got its own answers to the same challenges you're facing like is it are you like nervous that they've done it better or are you like excited to see how they've tackled it what's the what's the vibe there yeah i mean i, mean, I had a note about this about you know development insights of what happens when a competitor's revealed you know to do something similar to you or you're in that kind of vein it's it's always difficult because you know as, as a general rule and this this might annoy some designers is that I don't think there's any original ideas or, or there's very rarely as a designer where you come up with an idea that is completely brand new so if if you're mm. working on a game and especially a new IP if you look hard enough you will find something on Steam that is doing something similar kind of already and at that mm. time you didn't have to look far because you know um was not 343 that the destiny team uh, i forgot what they're called but they bungie. were bungie sorry yeah so bungie were basically having this big deal with activision you couldn't get away from it um and that's in the news but the way i mentioned that because we had the same thing on the crew the crew was in development and you also had forza horizon and drive club were roughly coming out at the same time three open world mostly british kind of developers at the time and really it's just about making 
a meaningful differentiation in your game that would bring people to that. that that's one kind of route. Another one is it needs to be immediately satisfying. Uh, so going back to you know some of the things I said earlier about respecting people's time, people play shooting games like Call of Duty because the gunplay feels good. Some people might bounce off another first-person shooter because the gunplay doesn't feel like Call of Duty. And also, Call mm. of Duty is free. So that that's another kind of aspect of it as well as you could be competing against a better game and a bigger game that has a different price difference. But the other way to do it uh, as uh, instead of being maybe first to market or being the best is I, I like the Gran Turismo kind of analogy uh, you know just one of my notes I got was you can rapidly kind of iterate your way to the top so there's only been two division games but they quite easily could have been maybe five or six in the last se- several years if the scope was kind of reduced and the reason I mentioned Gran Turismo is because Gran Turismo 4 to 6 between 2004 to 2013, so they made three Gran Turismo games in nine years. In roughly the same oh, time yeah. frame, Forza Motorsport had five iterations and Forza Horizon, so they did six games in seven years. And you look at how quality mm-hmm. and how well established that franchise is now. Um, whereas they could have looked at that, you know, the, especially the Forza Horizon team, and said. There's a lot of games on the market. You know, Gran Turismo is dominating the consoles. Well, at least on one platform. Why bother? But there's lots of different ways you can kind of go from there. And with The Division, Mm. there was no other third-person kind of realistic shooters in that kind of vein. And that was hopefully different enough from Destiny. Uh, Did you you enjoy the second one, by the way? I thought The Division 2 was excellent and uh, really built on the the bones of of what you worked on uh, very nicely. The the setting was very different, but did you you enjoy that as a punter? Exactly, yeah. I mean, a a lot of people that I worked with on Division 1 worked on that, and that's always the case, almost always the case at least, is that the iteration that you, or the benefits, you know, the learnings that you get from the first game is always better. But yeah, as as a punter, I think I did pretty much everything the game had to offer barring the DLC. So it's it's the post-launch stuff when it goes back to New York. That's the only thing I've kind of not scratched the surface of just yet. Uh, from there, Jamie, you worked in education. So what led to that? And then what pulled you back into game design? Yes, yeah, so, so this was at the tail end of uh, the division. The game was just about to ship at that point, And there was the opportunity to basically go elsewhere. You know, part of it was, um, you know, kind of personal circumstances. I was looking at, you know, buying a house and, you know, living arrangements and things like that. I, I'd been renting for most of the time. Um, so, so that was one part of it in terms of location. And another part of it was that at the time they were looking into, especially Ubisoft and local studios, the next kind of generation of talent. Because the thing I forgot to mention earlier was when I first got a job in games, it was shortly after the financial crash of 2008, which was Mm. probably the worst time that you could join games at that point. It was extremely difficult to get a job. Um, Mm. Fast forward six, seven years later companies are now more open to you know interns local kind of students where's the talent pool you know who's teaching these kind of people um, and when I went back to Teesside University and I was working for Electronic Arts at the same time so I was I was helping out in the FIFA franchise you know to keep a uh, you know foot in games basically um, I went back to Teesside teaching what were effectively contemporary practices because before that point there isn't actually many designers that were teaching games at least at a university kind of standard because most of those designers were still in the industry and it was typically 
you know, artists that were teaching what they thought maybe was design or their understanding of design. So basically it was trying to kind of level up that kind of course. And then, as I say, working on FIFA at the same time, you know, kind of remotely. When it comes to the the university um, lecturers, I guess there's probably an element of it's quite a young industry, right? So not many people are, have aged out of it as such to move into those kinds of roles. So I can see why... Um, why something like that would come up as an opportunity but um i was curious you mentioned fifa there uh how much uh, as a designer do you have to be a jack of all trades and uh, because you you're talking about you know like a a shooter here where you're figuring out a loot system you're talking about like a, a racing game where there are practicalities to figure out about how you play online and then you have football which is a completely different thing entirely so to what extent does being a is being a game designer about having like many strings to your bow yeah, I mean, th- th- this is always an interesting question because th- this is also where the AAA maybe versus indie divide comes in, where if, especially if you're on a smaller scale team, you're probably almost going to be expected to kind of dip your hand into not just aspects of design, but, you know, maybe aspects of audio and a bit of animation here and there and things like that. But in AAA, what I'd probably say broadly speaking is certainly at the start of your career that people are trying to figure out what you kind of enjoy what you're good at you know some people make an entire career out of ai design you know just designing how enemies behave and that's the only thing that they'll do for you know 15 20 kind of 30 years or whatever it may be um some people probably more like myself i I have a general interest in design more broadly so i've managed to touch upon different aspects of things however the later you kind of get in your career, the more specialized, you know, you may want to be. So at the moment, I'm more involved in the more game feel, hands on the pad, you know, gunplay, weaponry, character movements, all of that kind of stuff. So again, going back to the Mario example, there will be somebody, especially at Nintendo, whose full-time job will be to just work on Mario and not do anything else for five years you know or Zelda you know just work on Link for five years and that's kind of where I'm kind of moving I would say in kind of the mid part of my career now where um, teams are getting bigger specialist knowledge is is especially in demand but I've also got you know the jack of all trades kind of systems design you know progression systems all the things I've mentioned earlier that I'm aware of that can also feed into that as well or, or also you know as, as a, a softener if if you know a role on a certain project needed some experience but it's not necessarily character focused okay oh. interesting so I'm gonna ask I'm gonna combine two of the questions I had in my plan here Jamie because I think it's they are related but how much do you have to learn about different engines and the way they work as a designer and how do you feel about people talking about game engines in public when they have no idea what they're talking about, uh, which seems to be quite a lot? Well, the, the engines of it all, what's the um, what's that like as a designer? Yes, yeah, so, so the one thing that people will never mention about an engine, uh, a game engine in general, is it's basically a tool to kind of get the game working and it's a tool for basically designers or any other discipline to kind of work within and build the game. But one thing that people never mention is every single game engine is inherently flawed. And what I mean by that is some game engines are only made to do one thing. And some game engines won't actually do that one thing for a very long time. So if I talk about Driver, Driver was a proprietary engine. So this was an internal engine. It's not on the market. It was made internally. Um, That was made for 60 FPS open world games. That was 
close to 15 years ago now. I mean, even open world games now on the current consoles are struggling to do that. The offset of that is it's very low fidelity kind of graphics, um, and that's the inherent kind of flaw with our engine. And also, it's made for open world driving games. So if at that time Ubisoft decided to make no more kind of open world driving games, that engine kind of goes on the shelf, and that's the only thing you know it kind of sits there for. The same is true of something like Unreal Engine at the other end. It's probably one of the most broadly used off-the-shelf engines. The inherent flaw with that is is that it's not particularly perfect in any one given area. You know, it's the engine that does everything, but it's not necessarily perfect uh, at doing something in particular, which means that you have to adapt that engine in some way. And to give you the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, I mean, if you look at the Matrix demo that they showed uh, for Unreal Engine quite a while back and the collaboration with The Witcher 4... That is to deal with an inherent flaw in Unreal Engine where it's not necessarily built for super, uh, you know, super detailed, high fidelity open worlds, which is something that Rockstar have been doing for the past 15 years or so. So it's kind of a, it's a test case. It's a proof of concept for kind of showcasing that kind of stuff. So that's why some of these things, you know, come to fruition with, you know, dynamic placement of cars in the world, you know, buildings that can get generated at a click of a button. This is the type of stuff that previously would take, you know, months and years for kind of teams to put together. But in terms of like learning the engines, most of them have a lot of overlap in terms of there is a 3D interface. There are objects that you can drag and drop into the scene. You can move things around. You can create script logic to make those objects do different things. The, the the nuts and bolts of them are the same, but it's the interface and maybe the you know the scripting language or the coding language behind the scenes is different. And also, some of them have their own kind of quirks. So you know, I worked on Call of Duty, and on that, that is a very kind of arcane engine where some people have knowledge of that from you know twenty years ago that you know you would never find out as kind of a punter because it's just locked away in someone's brain it's not on a confluence page it's just you know oh. somebody's the old wizard oh. there's a there's a lot i know, it's very different but like you know there was a lot of that in magazines in terms of you know this weird bit of and we had like a bespoke capture device that like if it broke that it would never be made again because the guy who built it had, you know left future <laughs> years ago so it was kind of like here's hoping this doesn't break or we're never getting a wii screenshot ever again um <laughs> but i kind of like that i like the idea that it like is in someone's head that's, that's yeah. pleasing uh, J- jamie i suspect that's a lot more common than people realize that knowledge lives with people and not necessarily on a wiki somewhere do you think that's true that like there are there are people like that in every studio where the expertise sort of lives and dies with one person sometimes yeah i mean it's the danger though of having that one person who is the, the kind of you know the, the the crux of knowledge or you know they're the fulcrum of whether the studio is going to be successful or not i mean those kind of people would be highly in demand in terms of their expertise their you know high salaries they could kind of go live anywhere in the in the world that they wanted to but at the same time they're a real risk you know for example if they go on holiday from work or you know they get an illness or something like that so i think studios now are much more mindful of distributing that knowledge 
not only with the documentation, but maybe that person is the head of a, let's say, a programmer, that, that wizard of knowledge, you know, the arcane kind of cookbook that they've got, they're the ones that are trying to share it with their team of programmers. So they're disseminating the knowledge right. amongst the team. Because as I say, it's, it's, it's a boon as well as a risk to have people like that. I don't know if you watched the Psychonauts 2 documentary. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but one of the things I thought fascinating about that was when they switched from whatever they were using to Unreal. I think it was the first time they did that was for their virtual reality Psychonauts game, and just seeing all these sort of old timers, you know, with like manuals on their desks, and they're like, "Well, I guess we've got to figure figure this fucking thing out." <laughs> um, have you ever had like a moment like that of like? Is there a bit of, I mean, you say that there's a lot of overlap, but is there ever a little bit of like, oh shit, I've got to, I've got to learn this whole thing, this whole other thing now, or, you know, are there, are there enough things in place to kind of guide you through that process? Yes, yeah, so, so, sometimes yes and sometimes no. So I, I can't speak to it too much, but if you think of uh, something like Frostbite, so that's, that's EA's kind of engine, I think tr- mm. traditionally that that wasn't made to do the types of things that it's used for now you know it's it's used for driving games right. it's used for football games and things and i think originally it was um battlefield so large scale destruction yeah. kind of warfare and then imagine somebody says in ea okay the next game is going to be in frostbite okay really cool but your next game is going to be a driving game on track based kind of physics which has never been done before because they've only used off-road kind of vehicles um and also right it needs a progression system and all of these other things that maybe battlefields doesn't necessarily have i mean it does have a progression system but i'm speaking yeah. a lot of maybe like bioware it doesn't necessarily have the narrative tools right. to do what they want and then you're at the forefront of an engine that has lots of experience in the company but no experience in what it is that you're specifically trying to do with it. Mm. Right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Jamie, you, at Sumo Digital, you were the lead game designer on Hood, Outlaws and Legends. Mentioned that earlier. What were the challenges and opportunities of working on that one? Because that does seem on paper like more like your sort of thing, uh, maybe, than um, just based on your recent experience of games. Yeah, so, so this came up as a conversation from uh, somebody I, I used to work with at Ubisoft that they were moving into a design direction position on what was a, a hood, uh, Robin Hood kind of style game, team versus team, you sneak into the castle and you you steal the goods from the enemy, basically, and the enemy is AI guards um, and you're contending with those. So when that opportunity came up, um, Robin Hood is one of three characters that if I could choose to work on a game with any character... Like Robin Hood would be one of those three. Uh, the the other two, by the way, is really yeah. you're a big Robin Hood. Yeah, guy. I'm, I'm a huge fan of. Um, it, it's it's funny, not not just Robin Hood. I, I like medieval kind of era, but it's funny now. Oh right! You talk about you know PlayStation games on previous episodes about every single PlayStation game has a bow and arrow. Um, I'm kind of like. I like bow and arrows before they were cool, and now bow and arrows are everywhere. Right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, when that opportunity <laughs> came up, that was pretty cool. But the the real kind of challenge and the opportunity with that was it was a fairly small team trying to kind of punch above their weight you know effectively trying to make a triple a game what you might consider double a in a pretty tight timeline 
on new hardware. So I, I didn't mention this earlier, but the crew and hood were two games that were made for next gen platforms. So at the time, you know, I was basically getting hands on with, you know, the dual sense and, you know, what the specs of the console would be and how you would use the controller Ooh. before that stuff had even came out. So that was pretty cool. But the, the other challenge is at that time, the hunger games was out, you know, maybe five or so years before that. You had Lord of the Rings at the turn of the kind of century. You had the Arrow kind of TV series. You've got Tomb Raider, um, Horizon, and you've got The Last of Us. They are all the big staples for expectations of what a bone arrow kind of needs to be in a game. And Mm. we've got a game that has Robin Hood on the cover you better you better believe that that bone arrow has to be good <laughs> so the, so that was kind of the challenge yeah, you know right. with, the, with the small team um so yeah just working on that for pretty much two and a half years tr- trying to close the gap of kind of satisfaction in terms of what the bone arrow feels like compared to well-established you know competitors Oh, oh wow! Yeah, I even really considered that as a, and that's that's just one part of the game as well. And there's like all those, all these other parts to consider. And uh, what, yeah, what 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 is the king of bow and arrows in your opinion? That's a good question. At, at that time, um, Horizon was was the king for me, but, but their bow and arrow to me used to feel a little Fisher Price in the sense that it felt like it was dumbed down. It was a little bit too easy. It wasn't super hardcore in terms of how it felt to shoot a bow. So at that time, I would say Horizon. Um, Since, I would probably say Hood is right up there. And I do actually quite like the uh, the revised bow on The Last of Us 2, except I think they're throttled back because as you know you say on this podcast all the time they prefer to kind of stab dogs in the face instead you know they prefer the close kills <laughs> instead of the long range kills in that game <laughs> wow okay so um, so you mentioned Call of Duty one of the last games you worked on was Call of Duty Vanguard working on elements of the campaign like ammo scarcity and a dynamic cover system for the AI among many other things so your LinkedIn page by the way is excellent it really does have <laughs> lots of granular detail of what you've been up to uh, made my research very easy Jamie but um, how do you plug into the development process of a game with that much scale to it I mean it sounds like you've already worked on a lot of long large scale projects leading up to this but what is it like to you know this is you know you're at CMO I guess and then like you know that it's a, it's an Activision game it's one of Activision studios it's their own technology what's it like being plugged into a process that gigantic from your perspective yes yeah, so, i mean p- part of it was slight intimidation because that team previously um was the the dead space team so sledgehammer games originally formed from you know what was the remnants of visceral games who worked on dead space so that was pretty intimidating to me because as well as resident evil 2 i think dead space is the only kind of survival horror that holds a candle to that so that was one part of it you know putting the activision large-scale call of duty franchise to one side the other side of it was it was for me a bit like a comfy pair of slippers because Ubisoft already had franchises and teams of that kind of scale and those demands. You know, obviously not as big as Call of Duty, but the, you know, that that's the closest thing to a kind of a big machine that was going. But the most surprising stuff is the project itself. This is just for Vanguard. You know, effectively each Call of Duty game is four games in one. You've got the campaign. You got the multiplayer. You've got the co-op mode, which is normally zombies, but not always. And you've got Battle Royale. And I was joining the campaign team, which had twice as many people as the entirety of what we had on HUD, just on the campaign. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty crazy in terms of the size of that. So coming into that team, 
really you just have to come in and be pretty humble about it um in the sense that these are people that have been using an engine for far longer than kind of you have they've been using you know they, they used to say things on call of duty we don't do it that way we do it this way they don't tell you why until you try something out and then you realize you made a mistake and that's the reason why they do things the way that they have for the past 15 years you know something really simple like a you know a barrel in a game the barrel has kind of chamfered edges so it's almost like smooth kind of edges so it means you never get stuck on them when you're running through the environment they can get really picky with the collision in the game because anything that kind of snags the player reduces the flow that's in the game so it's basically just been open oh. to that kind of experience that they, they've built up over you know 10 15 kind of iterations and then basically come in with your own um kind of experience especially in the amos guest decide that's something i did on hood it's something i did on uh the division but it's something that they'd never done before because ammo scarcity is not really a thing that existed in Call of Duty. It's just fire as many bullets as possible. So I could bring my experience in that kind of area. Sure. Oh. Does it help coming in without maybe the same tunnel vision that when you've been working on one thing and thinking about that one thing for years and years, you don't necessarily have the same perspective of someone who's kind of been parachuted in to, to work on it? Does does that help at all, do you think, that perspective? I think so in, in some cases. Um, really, I would just say most people should be kind of open to new things or trying different things. But, you know, I, I've been on some games where uh, t teams have maybe working on an open world game for the first time. And I've worked with people who've worked on open world games, say Assassin's Creed and things. They'll have forgotten more than some people working on an open world game will kind of ever know. And I think some people are so set in their ways that they don't want that kind of outside advice or vice versa. They've got that kind of knowledge, but they're kind of reticent to kind of pass it on to the next person. You know, going back to the thing earlier, I said about the, you know, the person who's the oracle of kind of knowledge, it, it can be a risk mm. that kind of way. But c coming in externally, they were totally open to that stuff. There is some stuff that I did, a really low level example of uh, some interaction stuff in Call of Duty I helped them solve a problem that they'd never been able to solve in the last like you know 10 versions of Call of Duty but it's something that we'd done on multiple games kind of previously and it's about uh when you get to an interaction radius of something it's normally just a bound you know if you cross the boundary the interaction prompt pops up if you walk out of the bound it disappears uh, some games I've worked on have a feathering kind of volume, which means that the, the prompt stays on screen for longer so that when you push the button, you always get the interaction. Whereas sometimes you push the button, you were slightly too late or sometimes you were too early. That's a problem the game had had for years. Nobody will ever notice that problem. And even me mentioning it now, some people's thinking, what, what's he talking about? But that's the type of thing that, <laughs> that players will encounter like hundreds of times in a game and never realize why it hasn't been solved. Um, so, yeah, I got, I got huh. to bring something to it. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> some, uh, yeah, some truly amazing insight there, uh, Jamie. But now we get to the really important question, which is what are the biggest clangers you've heard on this podcast about either games or the way games are made as someone who actually knows what they're talking about? <laughs> so, that's, uh, um, as, as I said beforehand, you know, I, I don't think there's many kind of what I would consider kind of clangers, but th there's a couple of things I just jotted down from recent episodes. And I say recent ones, the, the, the ones I've been listening to recently. So, uh, the first one is just about the Halo uh, kind of episode. There was something that I think you said, Sam, which was um, uh, Samuel. Uh, uh, Devs should spend a lot of money on FPS campaigns and also <laughs> make them extremely replay replayable. And 
as, as soon as I heard that, I jotted it down straight away. <laughs> uh, and the, the, re- the reason being is because uh, you actually touched upon something quite important, which is that this is kind of two sides of exactly the same coin. Um, so if I go back to the Call of Duty example, the, the campaign of Vanguard, or any Call of Duty for that kind of matter, is probably one of the most expensive parts of the game relative to the amount of time that you spend in that particular game mode. So, it, mm, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what the money or what the cost would be, but it's 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 a big chunk of money for effectively six to eight hours of somebody's time. And to spend a lot of money on FPS campaigns these days, would they would probably be, you know, kind of reticent to do that unless something was going to keep them there for a long time, which touches upon your second point, which is to try and make it as replayable as possible. You know, dynamic kind of systems. Um, you have, you know, maybe more like roguelikes. That's one of the reasons why they're so popular recently is you're creating a fixed amount of content, but you can use it in an infinite amount of ways. Um, so that wasn't a clangor, but it was just one of those where <laughs> I don't think you can do one without the mm. other kind of thing in this case. Yeah. Oh. I, I will say I think that that was specific to Halo, where I think that Halo's the re, the replayability, the stickiness of those campaigns is exceptional versus a lot of other first person shooter games, which is why I was making that case. But yeah. um, double down, double down. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do on this podcast. We double down on our bullshit. Uh, no, that's a fair point. Um, you've got more though, JB. So I'm keen to hear them. Cool, cool. Yes, yeah, so the, there's two more. Um, the, the one, one for Matthew, and then I've got the, the last one is kind of have you both kind of combined because they dovetail together. So the second one is um, I've, I've named it here as uh, Matthew as a creative director. So the cool thing about this one was um, <laughs> the the 2022 end of year predictions. There was the bit about uh, the Indiana Jones game. You know, if if Indiana Jones is going out of a room, you should stick your hand under the door and have the hat kind of carry. You know, pull pull the hat back into your inventory or that kind of thing. Yes, <laughs> and that game's a ten, correct? Uh, uh, <laughs> totally. it, it, it's a million dollar seller. Um, so, so and and then also things like um, you know ideas for a lot of suggestions and the kind of the hit and hope kind of stuff. Again, not not necessarily a clangor, but this stuff does happen, which is somebody walks in a room says let's make this happen and they almost mic drop and kind of walk out again it doesn't happen very often but 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 uh yeah yeah i I have experienced that kind of in the past and especially you know something so trivial as as a as a hat kind of carry it's so ingrained to that character but some people might play that off as oh well our time is better spent kind of elsewhere on the flip side somebody can come in a room and say that kind of thing and because they're the head kind of honcho of the project that potentially could be the most important thing that anybody has to work on that particular day um right yeah mm. interesting yeah. i've got big creative director energy i like it <laughs> matthew matthew's made a five out of ten indiana jones game with the most meticulous hat grabbing animation that you could but you- the nazis have no ai <laughs> <laughs> exactly. oh amazing that's very interesting uh, Go on, Jamie. The last one, um, you know, d- d- dovetailing the two together, was was both of you kind of speaking from a consumer point of view about, um, you know, a game from Game Pass has to grab me within an hour or less. I'm, I'm paraphrasing these, by the way. <laughs> I don't want to put words in either of your mouths. But um, and, and the other one is sometimes you can play enough of a game to see what it has to offer. And I think that was yours, Samuel, about um, Ghost of Tsushima. You, you said that if you'd have played it for 30 hours... And then you played it for sixty hours. You would have rated it exactly the same because of you know the thirty hours mm. between. And I think th- these two are a really interesting point about 
modern games and especially kind of open world games, I'm much the same, which is from a design point of view, how do you deal with somebody that has 500 games to choose from on Game Pass at any given time? Probably isn't going to give an hour's worth of kind of, you know, attention to that. Because on, on average, I should say, by the way, that most players, average players, play games for 90 minutes per day. So that's the metric that you're kind of working against is if you've got 90 minutes to keep somebody's attention for the average player, um, an hour mm. or less. And then also, if they do stick with your game, how many hours does it take before you think you've seen everything that the game has to offer? Because I'm much the same. Um, I've done the campaign of... Mm. of um, uh, sorry Ghost of Tsushima I've done the campaign I haven't 100%ed it but I feel like I've seen at least one of everything that it's going to kind of show me at this point should I stick with it Mm. or should I go you know have a new fresh experience and from a design point of view that's what you're working against which is somebody who's going to move on to the next game because you've got repetitive kind of filler content or there's a nice new kind of advert on the Xbox dashboards that's attracting you to the next thing rather than sticking with what you have Mm. Oh, super interesting. I, Jamie, did I imagine that you had a Tears of the Kingdom clangor tagged in this document at some point? Maybe you took it out, but something about maybe the the sort of creative interface of Tears of the Kingdom, was that in your notes at some point? Uh, originally was, but I didn't want to start a, a war between any, any three <laughs> of us. Civil war. Yeah, about what we think of Tears of the Kingdom. But the long story short with that one was just, um, I, I think the... The, the the interaction system, you know, the, the gluing things together in Tears of the Kingdom, I think that's not very Nintendo when you think of how much time and effort they put into Mario feeling good in kind of an empty box room. For something that you use so frequently in Tears of the Kingdom, I just think it's a, it's a missed opportunity that they could have spent even more time making that user experience, you know, of, of a much lower standard. The only reason I brought it up in this kind of clangers was um, I, I don't necessarily want anybody to bat too hard kind of either way for Tears of the Kingdom, but I definitely think that was a misstep in terms of how frequently you use that mechanic relative to how comfortable it feels to use. Amazing. That's basically what I said and Matthew reviewed yeah, it. Yeah, that's absolutely bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts. Oh, amazing. Sometimes, sometimes, if you want to, ha- if you want to move the needle and you want to be ambitious, you know, you've got to, you got to take those early baby steps. Oh, amazing! <laughs> How much have you engaged with Starfield's um, settlement system, Matthew? By comparison, much of that, or Abs- <laughs> no, it's just, it's, no, not not at all. It's terrible. <laughs> oh, no, I actually, I actually had no idea what your perspective on that one was, Jamie, because I, I saw it tagged and I thought, oh, does he feel? the way Matthew does that it is intuitive and it is a step forward for the interface of that or does he feel the way I do which is that it lacks a bit of Nintendo simplicity I don't think it's intuitive listen I know it's not I know it's not intuitive but I'd say it's compelling enough that you will you will go through that learning process that's my stance amazing well Jamie you tried to be diplomatic by taking out the plan and yet here I am dragging you right back into it (laughs) exactly uh... this is why I didn't bring it up but but yeah I'm I'm, you know I'm I'm not taking sides either way but I just think it's um it's not it's not in their MO but but the other thing I was going to touch upon too which was if they were to do a sequel or they were to do an update you know the types of feedback that you would get on those kind of systems would be you know straight in the firing line for things to be targeted well well, surely Mm. they got lots of that feedback from user testing before they released the game right they had enough time to get that user that user feedback maybe this to them felt like the best possible version of what they could offer based on what they had i don't know um 
yeah as, i guess it's kind of rhetorical jamie but uh yeah um okay so here's a spicy question uh, but i think it's it's sort of key to the the title of the episode and it's something I, I just love hearing about from game developers because i think there is this gap of knowledge between what the public is allowed to know about game development and what game development is actually like and that's become more obvious in recent years with um, reporting from the likes of Jason Schreier and his books on this are very good as well but also just more anecdotal feedback being shared on social media about what it's like to work at big studios but um, I, what do you think is the number one thing that the public and or games journalists don't understand about games and the way they're made? Uh, I've got two but I will mention kind of the broadest one which is touching back on what we said earlier about the kind of the low level decision making versus maybe the high level vision of the game I think one thing that people will never recognize until you watch maybe a GDC talk or you, you maybe hear a developer discussing this stuff is uh, the amount of micro decisions it takes to help create a macro experience and I'll give you a really really basic example again Resident Evil 2 one of my favorite games so especially the remake so that's a survival kind of horror game where you're intending to put the player on the back foot, you're supposed to make it feel like that the player is, you know, disempowered, at least on the first kind of couple of run-throughs. So the types of micro, micro decisions they'll make are, a lot of people don't notice that in Resident Evil 2 Remake, you can walk backwards faster than you can walk forwards, which means that retreat is always an option. It makes no logical sense in real life why you can walk backwards faster than forwards, but that's a decision that's been made to kind of fulfill that experience I mentioned earlier. Um, the, the slight pause before you shoot the headshot means that you line up the perfect kind of shot. You know, you're taking that extra breath before you shoot. That increases your chance of getting a critical headshot. Um, another one is that Leon, and you know this is the case in Resident Evil 3 as well, they have a shoulder flashlight, so there's a light that's on your shoulder to show where you're going. If the character faces backwards, the light will still face forwards at all times. So you can always see what the camera is looking at, but not necessarily what the character is looking at. The limited inventory mm. size, uh, the manual collection of inf infrequent items, the dynamic resource management. So how many times have you played a Resident Evil game where you get to the end of a section, you feel like you're just about to run out of ammo, and then either it gives you an ammo dump or straight after that boss fight it kind of refills you again you know none of those things are by chance and i think there mm. is so many of those kind of decisions that get made on a daily basis including the the indiana jones kind of hat one you know that that's a more prominent example that that help contribute towards what the macro of the experience is when you're playing these games do you sort of see you know are you sort of seeing that stuff more easily you know is is it like looking through the matrix or like where where does that stuff come from? Like, do do you find yourself like you know you've got Leon in Resident Evil Two? Are you kind of like throwing that character around to try and get a sense of what they've done, or do you just instinctually know what they're doing? Uh, a bit, a bit, bit of both. So for for Resident Evil Two, I, I went through the entire game, had no idea that if you wait slightly longer to shoot them in the head, you'll get a critical headshot. And funnily enough, I chatted to the guy who originally got my job is called Mark Sample. I was chatting to him in a conversation and I said to him, it would be really cool if Resident Evil 2 had a thing where if you waited just slightly, it would have a higher chance of getting the headshot or popping the head. And he said, oh no, it does that. And I missed the loading prompt that tells you that information because the game doesn't really convey that very well. So that's part of it. But another part of it right. is, you know, the, the, the bit about throwing the character around. When I played... Uh, uh, Horizon Forbidden West, the second Horizon game, 
I spent the first 40 minutes in the first area doing everything. Running into the walls, rolling into the walls, rolling to shoot, jump into <laughs> shoot, go up to the trees. What does a collision look like? What happens if you jump into the water? What happens if you jump into the water backwards? Literally every single thing you can think of. And I recorded it all because, you know, that, that footage, especially internally, comes in useful when you're trying to do something similar. But, you know, mm. what, what is it that a premium game is doing? And in terms of animation they'll call that coverage you know how many different states of animations do you have and how many animations do you have for all of those permutations um so yeah i do bits of both basically oh man it's uh yeah i'm riveted it's it's really 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 cool to hear about uh okay so i guess along the same lines uh jamie when it comes to sort of like knowledge and understanding of games do you think the Heavily NDA'd nature of the games industry is a good or bad thing for helping the world understand how the sausage get made gets made. Are there some things that should be allowed to be forgotten? Should we know more? What What do you think of that whole side of things? Yeah, I think this is probably the most difficult question of them all. In the sense that, you know, obviously there's certain things you can and can't say in, when you're working in the industry, um, but I think there always has to be a willingness to share from developers, which is. You know, the kind of early access, the GDC talks, if anybody's not seen those, you know, anything where they're trying to show how the sausage is made. But equally, there has to be a willingness to kind of receive that from the users as well. And, you know, the bad news that you see of, you know, the Grand Theft Auto 6 kind of leaks, people look at that and don't understand that that's necessarily a project that's in development. You know, maybe that was two years prior to when the you know the information was kind of gathered. But if the developers have kind of came out ahead of time and said, here's the current state of the game, I don't know whether that would have been a better scenario or worse scenario than what actually happened, kind of regardless, because people want to keep their secrets. They, they want to surprise people on kind of the release day. Um, and as that thing becomes more and more common, you know, leaks seem to happen every th- three or four months at kind of this point, that the audience has to be receptive to, well, we're not going to engage with the leaks or if we see something that's in progress we're open to the fact that it's not kind of final but the flip side to that is when you do present something to the world you get something like the nemesis system from shadow of war and you get the ping system from you know apex two features that you know when i said earlier it's very difficult to kind of you know come up with a, a new original idea or something that's going to carry the industry forward arguably I would say that those two features did. They brought them out into the public domain. One of those features is now behind effectively a license lock that you're not allowed to do something in that kind of vein. The other one, which is the ping system, is basically being made freely available to everybody to do what they want with it. You know, if somebody wants to outright clone that feature, they can. So it's a combination of all of those things as to what secrets do you want to share? How is the audience going to receive it? And of the stuff that is in the public domain, how willing are you to allow others to kind of benefit from, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants? Okay, so here's my last spicy question, Jamie, then we'll uh, take a quick break. But um, what do you think about how auteurs and games are discussed by the media and the world at large? Does it tally with how games are actually made? Yeah, I mean, I mean, games are made by, especially in AAA, huge couple of hundred, you know, potentially up to a thousand people kind of teams. And to, to to put the success of that game down to maybe one or two 
people that are on the stage at you know Microsoft conference or the people that are kind of posting on Twitter in in high frequency and things like that it's not it's not ideal in the sense that they're the people that are getting the recognition for it at the same time they should because of maybe the successes that they've kind of got from their career so it's kind of you know it's a cop-out answer but there's there's good and bad I just think that the other side of it is when you see kind of directors in the media are getting portrayed they're leaving a company you know even the example of Jedi Survivor kind of recently it's already been announced that potentially there's going to be a, a, a trilogy to that the question I would have is, you know, the director of Jedi Survivor, what is the impact that that one person will have on potentially the third game in the trilogy relative to the other 600 people that are within that team? It's a bit different in Kojima's case because it was Kojima, you know, going from Metal Gear to Death Stranding, but also took a large proportion of his team with him. You know, I'm I'm not too sure if he'd have had the success if it was just him on his own, striking it out kind of on his own from scratch. So it's a combination of those two things as to how much influence a, a given individual kind of has on that franchise and how much benefit the the franchise can have. You know, when it does change director. You know, God of War is another example. Oh. The, the sequel is arguably better than the original one but you know how how much difference did Cory Barlog make for the second game versus the first game when you know the first game he was he had the reins yeah mm. exactly and you know that again like uh the the Jedi survivor creative director you're referring to is uh Stig Asmussen right so yeah uh, the guy who made God of War 3 which is a favorite of me and Matthew a problematic fave of me and Matthew so <laughs> yeah and then, and then you wonder how much that uh how relevant does that become more a more or less relevant example with time as team sizes grow because the god of war 3 development situation would have been a very different scenario to jedi survivor right so yeah but um again we we have no real way of knowing but it's it is interesting to hear your your perspective on it i think that that makes a lot of sense it's not just about one person it's maybe about a collective of people in relation to one person so uh yeah I was curious, though. I mean, this, you know, maybe this kind of runs counter to that question and and what you just said. But like, it, you know, in all the different things you've worked on, have you have you ever worked under someone who you thought was like this person's a genius or this person's brilliant and like they should be better known? Yeah, I mean, definitely on both sides. I mean, I've I've worked with fantastic directors. Excuse me, that are fantastic directors kind of in their own right. Right. It, it, it's on the team, it's on the PR kind of side, it's on the director's side to say, hey, you know, we've got a fantastic team, we're doing these things, we're all a collective, as opposed to trying to be somebody that's going to, you know, t- try and take all the plaudits for yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's super interesting. Well, um, thus ends our spicy questions, Jamie. Let's take a quick break <laughs> and we'll come back with some of your development insights. Right. Welcome back to the podcast. Time for Jamie to teach us some things. This section is called Development Insights. Jeremy, uh, so we could call you Jeremy then. It's uh, definitely a weeknight <laughs> for me here. Uh, <laughs> all guests are turning into Jeremy Peel for me at this point. Um, so, Jay, <laughs> so uh, Jamie, um, talk us through your little uh, description here of, of this section and kind of what you're what you're hoping to, I guess, like impart from um, from your knowledge as a game designer. 
Yeah, so the, the first thing I was just going to touch upon, and again, it'd be interesting to hear your kind of takes on this, but it's a it's a bunch of questions that if I wasn't a game developer, what I would ask people about how this thing particularly works, because it's not always obvious to people. So effectively, I'm Joe Bloggs on the street. How do these things kind of work? And all I was going to do mm-hmm. is just go through a couple of questions, kind of one at a time. They're pretty broad, but hopefully it'll give people some insight as to how things work and just a quick caveat again is this is mostly my experience in triple a it's not necessarily the experience of you know everybody in, in that case um yeah mm. no worries how about um, me and matthew alternate in asking you the questions you fixed it here just Sounds to, good. yeah that's that's good matthew do you want to go first yes i can do a very convincing impression of an idiot on the street you know it's nothing about <laughs> it sounds much like my normal voice with that um Jamie, what are the common pitfalls when producing a new IP? Yeah, so the, this, um, you know, my other spicy take is that a new IP in AAA is probably the most difficult thing that you can do in AAA game dev. Um, the reason being is because, as you'll have heard of people on this podcast before, and any game even releasing is kind of a borderline miracle in terms of there are so many forces that are working against you, you know, money, time, experience, whatever it may be. And when it comes to new IP, that's almost a force multiplier on all of those things that are working against you. Right. So you've got, you know, the experience of the team, you've got the track record of the studio, you've got being able to establish a franchise because one thing that people forget is you're not trying to create a game you're trying to create a franchise take a look at something like remnants i was just playing that earlier actually remnant twos just came out they probably in mind they had in mind that they wanted to create a franchise not a game and they used to do that at ubisoft with some titles which was you wouldn't necessarily put all of your eggs in the basket for the first title you would kind of lay them out in a row because you knew you wanted to make a trilogy the first game might be slightly weaker in that case. Maybe there's less finances, maybe there's less experience with the team, but the second game will really benefit from that. And you'll see that in the case of Jedi Survivor as well, you know, the, the kind of the follow-on of taking an established franchise but making something kind of new. Um, another reason is is because when it's a new IP, you're trying to find the fun. You, you don't even know what the game is. You don't even know why people are going to play the game at that point. So you can spend a whole load of time in a test arena or a test environment so we normally call it a gym trying to find out you know what makes mario tick that that could be six months of your time trying to make a character that's comparable with mario um you know six six months would be Mm. you know a, a shorter kind of estimate um you could be targeting a certain audience, identifying a niche. Uh, I'll just blast through a couple of these. Ideally, a team needs to recognize their limitations, which is a really good one. If a team has never worked on an open world game before, the team should know at the start of the project, we've never worked on an open world game before. Whereas I've been on some projects previously where, you know, on different projects and different genres, you don't know what you don't know. When we first worked on a third person kind of open world game like The Division, Nobody on that team had worked on that, aside from the people who'd worked on Watch Dogs. The people who worked on Watch Dogs hadn't worked on a third-person open-world game because they'd worked on Driver, which was, you know, fully in a car. Having a big team too early is another good one. You're trying to Mm. create something with maybe a a, you know 70, 80-person team when maybe you only need 10 people to kind of find the phone or what the essence of the game is and then slowly but surely kind of bring people on. 
and th there's a whole load of others mm. but the, the exception to the rule of this is take a look at something like Gorilla so Gorilla Games make the Killzone franchise which I used to absolutely love especially Killzone 2 if somebody said to me that a Sony team is going to take a boatload of money and they're going to make what might be considered one of the best kind of open world games of the last maybe 10 years or so and, and kick off a whole new franchise they've never done quests before They've gone from linear corridors and shooting to an open world and kind of projectile-based behaviors to one enemy from one enemy type to a whole load of creatures, of, of which not all of them are ground-based. I would say that is probably one of the riskiest things you can do in game development, and yet they massively succeed at kind of do that. So I see, I see Guerrilla Games as being the exception rather than the rule, because that doesn't happen very right. often. yeah. It's uh, it's super interesting. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about uh, Playground currently transitioning. Well, not you know, I imagine they're still going to be making Forza games, but you know, the core of the Fable team having made a, an open world car game, like the, you know, they're both going to be we assume open world games, but like even that jumps, you know, you would imagine that's going to be pretty massive for them. Right? Exactly, and and just as an outsider, that, that, that's what you can see with it, but but the benefit that they have, you know, Fable's a good example, so is the Star Wars one, which is, of all the things I've mentioned, think of them like sliders, you can make it harder or easier for yourself, so the Fable team tends to hire people that need RP that have RPG experience. So they might not necessarily have that in-house, right. but they're hiring that kind of in. But then you have to gel the team and the culture and things, so there's other aspects. But, you know, touching mm. upon the Star Wars example is it's a brand new game, but it's an established franchise. So if you can tie it to something, that kind of reduces that force multiplier a little bit. And it's the same as Fable. Mm -hmm. Regardless of the game in the end, it's a, it's a franchise that's well-known and well-established. That, that gives them a lot of grace in terms of the audience. But at the same time, you can also miss trends if, if a game goes on too long or you know maybe the Fortnite kind of style games or extraction shooters... If you start making one now where the popularity is, it's realistically not going to be coming out for the next three or four years unless you do you know, an early access or something like that. Some good examples there, I think, Jamie, of, um, of the types of developers you're talking about. Are there, are there any other kind of new IP that jump out to you as it's really impressive that they pulled that off? Obviously, um, Jedi um, Jedi uh, Survivor and Jedi Fallen Order are a good example, so at Horizon. I thought Ghost of Tsushima was actually a good example of this as well. That is a, a team that has made open world games, but one set in yeah. like a built-up city, and the, it requires a completely set of different set of disciplines, I imagine, to build one in a vast open world in the way they did. Is there anything else that sort of jumps out to you as a good examples of this? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a good one as well. The other one that probably jumps out is um, Naughty Dog making a multiplayer game. And I think that's another one of those where you don't know what you don't know. Because as far as I can remember, the last multiplayer game they'll have done, which will have been maybe The Last of Us Survivors mode or Uncharted's, you know, what one or the other, whichever one kind of came first. So that's the best part of six, seven, eight years where they'll basically be doing high fidelity campaigns, controlling player behaviours, interactions, lots of dialogue. How does that now transition into a game where people are going to spam the jump button and, you know, grief each other kind of all of the time? You know, there's a whole load of pain that's coming their way at some point. <laughs> okay. But but what a bow, though. What yeah, a bow. But, but the bow's good. The bow, as long as the bow transitions over, yeah. fine. That would be perfect. <laughs> okay, so next question. Why did games take so long to make? 
Yeah, so, so that kind of dovetails from the last couple of things we mentioned is, you know, finding the fun. A really big one is producing content. So when we talk about content, we're predominantly chatting about art and kind of animations. You'll see, especially Tears of the Kingdom, you know, the topical one we've just been chatting about, there is a reason why Nintendo placed the game in, for the most part, the same world. I mean, obviously there's new additions. Um, I won't spoil those in case anybody still hasn't played. But the world is mostly the same because to build an entire open world from scratch, again, would probably take them even longer. You know, you'd still be waiting for the game until probably the new Switch comes out or even longer. Um, that's why also one of the other reasons why in things like Warzone, you know, you've got the DMZ mode now in Call of Duty, they're reusing the same map because it takes so long to create the arts, to create the environments. When Fortnite changes their map, that is a whole, you know, kind of season. It's a big kind of update. It's a big event. It just takes so long to create this kind of stuff, uh, generally speaking. So that's just on the content side. But you've also got the personnel on the team. Like you mentioned with Fable, you've got somebody who maybe has RPG experience but is now new to the team and needs to get up to the processes of Microsoft and familiarity with teammates, you know, because that's another kind of aspect. You get the tool sets. So again, we've chatted about game engines, so learning those kind of tools. Um, Again, there's a whole bunch of others, but the other thing that does happen more often than not is high-profile changes can happen in a project that is that happens more often than it's presented in the media. So going back to that, you know, a director kind of changes at, uh, from Jedi Survivor, for example, or you get like an Amy Hennig at Naughty Dog and with the Star Wars game. Those are the really high-profile, top-tier developers that are announced in the media. And that seems like maybe that happens once a year or maybe a couple of times a year. Behind the scenes, that probably happens more often than people think, and that can knock a project back, you know, multiple months because a new director comes in, they have a different take. Uh, Maybe they have to redo some work that's taken the team six months to do. You know, there's a Uh whole bunch of other things. And then the final one, just broadly speaking, is just polish. So people say the uh, the Pareto principle, 80-20, so you will spend 80% of your effort in the final 20% of the game because that's the 20% that will carry you, you know, maybe three, four, five Metacritic points kind of up. And by polish, we're chatting about not just bug fixing, but appreciation for the overlooked kind of aspects of a game, the types of things that people will just run past, but the one person in a thousand that interacts with it, somebody has handcrafted that particular experience. Um, I think in Tears of the Kingdom, if you stand in a certain place at a certain time of the day and you chat to somebody, you get a different dialogue option than if you chat to them at night, for example. So somebody has had to kind of make that difference or that distinction, and that doesn't come for free. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you see stuff like the if the sun's behind you, Yep. there's a specific dialogue thing of like, oh, it, it, it's, uh, you'd be able to see it if the sun wasn't in the way, and you're like... That would only ever happen if the sun was specifically there. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a sort of sub-question on this. Uh, I was interested, like, what's the longest you've worked on an individual game? And, like, how people deal with the fatigue, like, internally of working for something for so long. Like, how do you remain interested in a thing? Yeah, so th- this is... I didn't have that down, but that's a really good question. Um, so the longest project is two and a half years from start to finish 
which anybody listening to this, especially from AAA, will say that's extremely short. You know, generally speaking, <laughs> uh, b- b- yeah, b- because for Driver, Driver, I think was maybe a four, five, six year project. But I was there for the final eighteen months. Um, the division was right. maybe probably the division was about the same, maybe two and a half or three years. The crew was about two years. Um, Hood again was two two years, uh, two and a half years. Call of Duty. Uh, I came on during production, so again, it was more like driver. It was kind of helping the game along, so maybe 18 months or so. Now, mm. most games, realistically, or I should say FIFA's a yearly, a yearly franchise, so, you know, for what less than one year. But most projects, realistically, now, on the short end, will be four years. And, you know, I, I've pretty much moved jobs every four years, pretty much. So, typically, mm. you come to the end of a project that's the time when a lot of people kind of exit the studio or they look for something new. And especially if you've been on a game for three, four, five, six, seven years, that's definitely the time to either change or at the very least to kind of consider your options because, you know, when it when it turns into seven years, it could be 10 years. When it turns into 12 years, it might never, it might not ever see the light of day and you've mm. spent 10 years on something that somebody never sees. Mm. Do you think that that makes the way that we that people talk about companies and games slightly redundant jamie like do we because we know so little about the makeup of the personnel does it make sense to for for one game developer's name to have so much baggage attached to it or is it does it just never tell the full story when you talk talk about games in that way probably both um you know you mentioned you know some of the behind the scenes jason trier stuff is you won't really hear that stuff until somebody does like an investigation or you know somebody spills the beans or whatever but the the one the the one that always gets people and it's a saying we've had in the past is uh i mean obviously e3 doesn't exist at least in the current form but people used to say never go to e3 three times if you go there once you kind of showcase the game if you go there twice that's about the time where you need to be announcing the release date if you're there the third time, the game probably should be on the shelf at that point. And the general rule of thumb is if you're at a conference kind of three times or, maybe, or more, you could probably suggest that there's either something behind the scenes that's either wrong with the project or the project is just taking longer than people might expect and you're best probably not showing it. You know, that's a classic example for um, for uh, Elder Scrolls Six. It's my most wanted game. They showed it two or three years ago, just as a quick teaser. Realistically, it's not going to see the light of day for you know maybe four or five years more. They probably could have just held it off, you know, for another few more years because every time that it comes to E3, the expect well, you know, whatever the game shows if, if the summer is now, the people's expectation is going to keep going up, and the pressure on the team rises, and then things go wrong in development, and then it becomes a vicious kind of cycle at that point. Uh, Matthew, the next question is yours, my friend. Yes. <clears throat> How do you address an undesirable aspect of a franchise? Yeah, so th- so th- this is where I was going to bring up the uh, the Tears of the Kingdom stuff, but I'll I'll touch upon a, sl- <laughs> a, a slightly different example. Um, so a lot of years ago, uh, we used to work on uh, or helping out in the Assassin's Creed franchise, and especially at Ubisoft, you used to see behind the scenes lots of kind of details about projects, you know, postmortems, best practice advice for open world games and things like that. And uh, one of the things that we used to do is they used the map, and this is where it comes into kind of uh, both of your realm, is they would take reviews and all of the feedback that they would get from online, you know, videos and journals and things like that. 
they would put it all on a graph and at the at the left hand side of the graph would be hated and on the right hand side of the graph would be loved so this is specifically talking about features so features that you love and hate in a game and then on the other mm. axis in the vertical axis was if something was mentioned not very often or it was mentioned a lot so what you what you really wanted was you wanted features that people loved and that were they were mentioned all of the time kind of consistently what you didn't want mm. was a feature that was mentioned all of the time but everybody hates and that comes back to the Zelda example you know with the uh, the breakage kind of stuff that generally speaking I, I I don't mind it but there's a lot of noise from people about not liking that feature so first off you've got to identify what those features are but coming back to Assassin's Creed one feature that they loved this was around the time of uh, Black Flag was the boats so you know pretty much most of the Assassin's Creed games since have had some kind of boats in them because they were loved um a hated part of the game was the escort missions so any mission where you had to stay by you know some kind of AI and you know guide them to a goal or something so eventually that feature disappeared from kind of Ubisoft games and you know other other companies will probably do something similar the curious one is what happens if you have a feature that's polarizing and this is where Desmond kind of comes in from the narrative um if if you have something in a game that's a 50-50 you know 50% of the audience like the matrix kind of stuff and 50% of the audience don't like it the problem you've got there is you will piss off 50% of the audience regardless of which decision you kind of make so yeah right. so they used to just say leave it in the game and you know it's skippable for the, for the most part so that's the way that you right, used to yeah. approach it if it's undesirable <laughs> those are your kind of options typically just a big skip Desmond. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I've got a question about this, actually, Jamie. So uh, what do you think... Uh, so are escort missions dead, do you think? Have they been sort of soft replaced by these AI companion missions? A bit like how the Luis stuff works in Resi 4 Remake, where you are you are with a companion and there's maybe like some kind of like soft objective to keep them alive, but really it's about you and this other character maybe you're facing more enemies because you have combined firepower it's, it's more of like a hangout mission than an escort mission what what do you think happened there to the escort mission generally uh it depends because i, I would probably guess on on you know overwatch the the escort and the objective is probably pretty popular so it's in a, in a multiplayer mode i think that's pretty interesting the resident evil one i, I think the problem always starts with how much interaction does the player have to have with the the escorted you know person or object and then the other side of that is in how many situations or circumstances does that thing get in your way of enjoying the experience and i like the resident evil example you mentioned i forgot about that one but that is somebody goes to do an interaction and you just leave them You, you just leave them alone and you just do your own thing you you just shoot the enemies and make sure that they don't get caught but you don't have to drag them to the interaction you don't have to pick them up off the ground whilst they're in the interaction in a lot of the cases. T- typically, I think it's just about how often do you have to kind of handhold them is what it comes down to. Wow, that's great. The graph thing is uh, <laughs> super interesting. And I think they have found some good ways to deal with that uh, with the Desmond stuff over time. So uh, yeah. good for them. Um, I'd be curious, to, I mean, maybe you can't talk to this, I don't know, but I'd be curious about like things which aren't loved or hated, but are just kind of like tolerated. And whether, because, you know, there are a lot of features that you see across Ubisoft games, which 
in anecdotally there seems to be a lot of fatigue around you know like the bell tower climbing up a tall thing to scan a map which then fills with icons and like but they persist so but i've never really seen anyone kind of come out saying they sort of love them i wonder if people just sort of think they're fine and things which are just fine you just go well we'll just keep on we'll just keep hold of that you know yeah in fact i'm glad you asked this because i was thinking that uh you know as i was writing some of the questions and coming up with some stuff so there's there's a concept called the uh the kano method this isn't named after kano from mortal kombat (laughs) (laughs) no no unfortunately not it's it's not named after the rapper either uh but but uh no it's um it's a method that they use in uh basically building cars and it's about features that you need to make things work so just to give you a basic example 20 or 30 years ago electric windows on a car were like the thing you know that that was the fancy kind of bells and whistles if you had a fancy car now it's one of those that people just take for granted that you've got electric windows on a car but also the whole purpose of a car is to get you from a to b but nobody ever gets in a car and says hey that was really good a to b or that was really good electric windows you just take that stuff for granted (laughs) i do because i'm weird (laughs) (laughs) exactly but but nowadays it would be more like you know heated seats or you know electric kind of displays and things like that it's the same thing when it comes to features in a game which is if you don't if, if you took something out that was so essential to the game that people don't even realize it you you never mention it until it's not there kind of thing and there's so many things in games that are like that which are you're probably best leaving it there because it's the foundation or you only take it out if it's to the detriment of everything else so if there was lots of filler content that people aren't really mentioning actually people might be using that filler content as a way to avoid the best stuff in the game or vice versa so you probably want to reduce the amount of filler Mm. content Um, and also if you want to improve the filler content going back to the stuff we touched upon earlier that's extremely expensive depending on how wide reaching it is but generally speaking you Mm. know if, if it's not really mentioned probably just leave it alone until so, yeah, right. until it kind of bubbles up to the surface in some way. Well, it's really interesting because I don't know if necessarily... I would say that maybe of all the major genres, that it feels like the open world games have evolved the least in the last few years. And you mentioned, Jamie, that you have a bit of fatigue with this. And I do as well. And I think that a lot of the same principles established with GTA 3 and Assassin's Creed in 2007 have stuck and that hasn't like massively changed is there also an element of we don't exactly know how to solve this problem but we know this works because the player understands how it works and it's a way that uh, you know we can lead them through this game is there like that there's a, that kind of like hard practical element to it as well yeah I, I mean the classic example of that is why every single game has towers i mean it includes zelda as well which is that that's effectively a disney principle about you know what they're called weenies or referred to as weenies you go to a theme park and you can always see the you know the magical castle in the center of the theme park it always attracts people eyes it always takes them to where they want to be it's for orientation that is from something that's probably at this point close to 100 years old it made its way into games and has now become a staple if you had a zelda game or assassin's creed or wherever else it may be and you took all of those kind of towers out I think the player would have a difficult time kind of orienting or seeing what their next objective kind of be. So some of it is fear of the unknown. 
what would a Zelda game look like if they took all of the towers out? So that's one part of it. And and then mm. the other part of it is, if you did take them out, what do we put in its place? Because the towers are there for, as I said, orientation. If you take them out, how do you solve the orientation kind of part? You know, you're no longer following a trend of towers, but now you have to solve the problem of how does a player get from A to B or how do they see their next kind of objective or next piece of gameplay? Uh, what about a, a magical bird that tells you where to go? <laughs> That's my suggestion. Done. Job done. Well, Sh- Assassin's Creed has one of those too, so, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, Matthew, the next question is yours. What happens on the road to release? Yeah, so so, so this one, um, and we're at, we're at the perfect time of year to kind of talk about this stuff, which is um, sometimes on people's Twitter's accounts or you see it on you know, Eurogamer or something that a game has gone gold. And a lot of people probably see that as the outward facing, you know, the, the game is ready to ship. Um, going gold refers to the old kind of gold master discs that they used to burn the final version of the game onto before they'd send it off for submission. But these days, it's effectively just an, an online upload that you send a package to a server. But when you're chatting about the road to release, what a lot of people don't realize is that a game is probably done at least maybe six to eight weeks you know, before it's actually on the shelf um, in terms of when it's finished. The going gold is just the you know more of a PR kind of thing that the company likes to do to present that. But the question there becomes... Well, what happens to a team during that six to eight week kind of period before a game is kind of coming out? Uh, And there's a whole bunch of stuff that probably never gets mentioned, which is you've got compliance. So all of the different platforms have their own rules for how to actually get your games onto them. So you're working towards kind of all of those uh, checklists. You know, it might be something as simple as trophies and achievements kind of unlocking to frame rate kind of issues in the game that you have to resolve. Um, It might be that it has to work on a PS4 original as well as a PS4 Pro, as well as a PS5 and kind of so on. So all of the different hardwares. Um, The the other one that a lot of people never mention is what's called uh, on PlayStation Play Go. And I think on Xbox now it's got a slightly different name, but it's called Fast Start, which is when you put a disc in the drive Mm. or when you purchase a game it installs the first chunk of the game as quickly as possible so that you can get up and running. So if anybody's played Xbox and they've seen that, it says ready to start. And then you look at the progression bar and it's only done 10% of the download or something. So that's something that you probably need to think about earlier in development. But the reason for that is they want to get you in the game as quickly as possible. So normally games will portion off a small part of their entire, entire game try keep you playing that experience maybe for 30 minutes or so depending on your download speed and then in that time the rest of the game is downloaded so if I give some examples um in fifa they put you in an arena one stadium two teams and you play a game you can maybe you can have a rematch there's 30 minutes in that 30 minutes the rest of the game is kind of downloaded in the background so it's a very portioned off kind of area of the game the division did the same you know you get the first island which is a tutorial uh the crew also did the same you know it's a walled off version of detroit you can't go elsewhere and if if nintendo for example were to ever put breath of the wild on a different device think of it as the great plateau is the initial kind of portion of the game that you would install and in right. the background, the rest of the world would be kind of downloading, so they want to get you in the experience as quickly as possible. So it's that kind of stuff, you know, setting up. Um, but also, there's other things like the day one patch uh, or what what's called kind of title updates. 
that some people, especially when they're playing open beta of a game, think that, especially if it's maybe six weeks before launch, all of their feedback that they have maybe about the weapons in Call of Duty is going to make it into the game tomorrow. And the reality is it might be lucky if it makes it into the day one title update because the game is off for submission. They can't physically change the game anymore because the discs are going to get burnt. But the first day download, that's the day where, you know, all of the new content appears in the game or maybe the updates to the weapons or the characters or whatever else it may be. But yeah, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the six to eight weeks before launch. So for example, when I said this time of year, we're in late September now, any game that's coming out kind of in November is probably done around this point about now. And they're Mm. on the road to release, which is all the stuff I've just mentioned. I have one very quick question to squeeze in. And this just calls back to something you said way, way about like a a junior role, something that they might do. And you mentioned they might work on achievements. How how do you make an achievement in a game? (laughs) How do they actually know that they've like popped and things like the actual kind of the thinking behind that is that difficult or is that really dumb no no normally it, it's it's interesting um it no, normally it's basically just an additional layer of code on the game that's tracking let's say stats so if it, you know if it's kill 50 enemies right, they'll have right. their own kind of uh, counter behind the scenes but that that can be more involved um i remember we did one on driver years ago you've got that street in san francisco called lombard street it's like a snake kind of shape um that that yeah. street i i come up with an achievement which is called lombard streak and you had to get from the top of the road to the bottom of the road as quickly as possible um the real challenge though was is that if you use the fastest car in the game it actually makes it harder because it doesn't handle very well around that particular terrain but 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 right. for that achievement we had to place physical markers in the game to say where the start and finish point was and we start an invisible timer behind the scenes and as long as you go through those two invisible markers within the time frame the achievement pops but that's basically how it works in most games right and ideally right. you have a nice pun to go with it there jamie as well that exactly would, uh, that, that makes it good. always helps <laughs> <laughs> okay so next section design challenges jamie do you want to explain the ethos behind behind this section Yes, as I put this together again, again, time permitting, but the idea was is um, the, these are the types of things that designers will kind of come across. And I've touched upon some of these kind of already, but they're split into what I consider kind of two types. So there's common design problems, which are things that almost every single game has to solve in maybe one way or another, depending on the genre, or types of things that you'll come across kind of frequently throughout your career or at least 1.3 your career. And the other one is cursed design problems where you know these are things that people don't take on the challenge of too much for various reasons or if you do manage to solve that particular problem you have the opportunity to maybe set a new norm or a new standard in the industry so it's a common and cursed is kind of the way i framed these um and (laughs) i just had a, a couple of questions just for discussion point more than anything else and maybe even what you know what your thoughts were on these things as well okay sure yeah common and cursed is basically how our episodes break down as well like there's only the, <laughs> there's only those two versions so uh yeah okay so um yeah so common design problems and design challenges that you'll typically encounter at least once they're they're typically conventional uh well-worn approaches to take so i'll take this first question matthew how to make a satisfying weapon Yes, so this one, especially when it comes to something like Call of Duty, uh, we touched upon a bow and arrow kind of earlier. One thing 
that people don't mention is how often players miss in a game. People always talk about how good it feels to get a headshot, but good accuracy in something like Call of Duty is 26%. So that means a player is going to miss three of every four of their shots. Therefore, you better be damn sure that those three or four shots that you miss feel good. Um, It feels good in Call of Duty to shoot the ground because of the weight of the weapon, the the haptics, the camera shake. Uh, They added something in, uh, I think, the latest Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2 from last year. Every time you shoot, there is a white flash on the screen and it simulates kind of the flash that you would get from the end of the gun, you know, kind of from the muzzle. And ultimately, it's just pushing Mm. that kind of stuff, which we consider kind of signs and feedback, as far as possible um and and specifically not only how good it feels good to hit something but miss because that's what players do most often and especially in a bow and arrow game <laughs> you might have limited kind of ammo it, you, you want to make sure as much as possible that the player is going to land that final shot you know so there's lots of kind of helpers behind the scenes to home arrows towards somebody's headshot or you just missed but the game counts it as a hit you know there's lots of little things like that that people do Mm. so it's not just about how it sounds how it looks it's yeah there's other behind the scenes elements that are informing that that's super interesting yeah Mm. what do you think's the hardest gun to make good kind of gun you know there's there's broad categories of guns yeah Yeah, shotguns (laughs) pistols etc yeah yeah i mean i mean if i if i flip the question around slightly which is um how do you know that you're going to make good guns in a game and which one to start with every day of the week it's a shotgun a shotgun (laughs) right I've, i've worked on so many games where oh this is the typical thing that happens most people start with an assault rifle because it's the all range kind of weapon and even in the division why would you bother with any other weapon in the game when the assault rifle is the jack of all trades in all kind of situations? But a shotgun is mm. up close and personal. You need the hit reactions. You need the heft of kind of the recoil. It needs to feel like it's done significant kind of damage. It potentially takes the enemy off their feet. It potentially has shotgun-specific hit reactions. So they're, they're hit reactions that will only play if you use the hit reaction you get the the close range kind of impacts and maybe some blood kind of spatters onto the camera or something like that. So if you can if you can sell a shotgun really well, then I have a lot of confidence in all of the other weapons in the game. And second after a shotgun hmm. would be a sniper because it's the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So that's where I would always start is the close range weapon, right. make it good. <laughs> and then the far range weapon, make that good. And then do in between. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a great answer. Uh, Matthew, this next question is yours. How do you address grouping up with other players if there is a progression mismatch? Yeah, so th- this this is a common one that people always forget about is, you know, th- between the three of us, one of us has played the game for five hours, one of the players has played the game for 50 hours, and one of us has played the game for five minutes. How How do we group up together and, you know, make that feel good for everybody and that you know you know you're not dragging people back um there's lots of different ways to do this i've saw some games that skip tutorials entirely to get you into a squad it's it's something that frustrates me is if we want to play together and the game says you've got to complete a 20 minute tutorial first before you can join that's super frustrating i've worked on some games where they say let's just assume that the people you're joining are friends and your friends are going to teach you how to play the game in the moment. So that's that's a valid kind of option with that. Um, Dark mm. Souls does passwords, which which I really like. Um, so you can play multiplayer with people, and you give people a specific password, and then I can join a high-level player's game 
they can help me through the experience and then that way it, it, it doesn't matter about my mismatch of of you know skill I'm with somebody that I actively want them to help me because they have an end game weapon or they have you know far more experience with the game right but then you can also do subtle stuff I think it might be Borderlands or something else recently maybe Gears of War they do damage adjustments so I I deal the same amount of damage against an enemy and you deal the same amount of damage against an enemy that you would normally do but for me it takes more bullets or for you it takes less bullets or whatever it may be so even though we're playing in the same game right the enemy's health doesn't change just our amount of damage to the enemy kind of changes so therefore you don't get one person who's kind of trouncing enemies you know killing them left right and center uh but yeah it's just just managing kind of damage but there's, there's a couple of different ways to go about that kind of stuff this next one is uh is interesting how to approach resource scarcity something you've done uh, quite a lot of work with yes yeah, so, so, so I, th- I think the real difficulty with this one is is that a lot of people when they think of ammo in games let's, let's just say for a weapon it's really easy you take the number that's in the weapon and then you just remove that number from the inventory and as long as you have ammo there the gun kind of refills the problem starts to become is what happens if you have a limited amount of clips or you can swatch, swap weapons? And by that I mean, imagine having uh, imagine you have an assault rifle, you've got 20 bullets, and you drop the assault rifle on the ground. Do those 20 bullets go with the assault rifle or do they stay in your inventory? What if your inventory is already full and you can't pick up more ammo off the ground? If you kill an enemy and they drop a weapon, how much ammo does that weapon have? If you kill a whole load of enemies in the environment and don't pick up their ammo, how much ammo is kind of left scattered on the ground and how many interactions do you have to take? And what happens if you kill five enemies right next to each other? And this this is a pain point I have from, uh, from Dead Island, is you kill five enemies and they all drop five items and they all give one bullet, two bullets, and you have to interact five times in a row while staring at the ground. And we've done stuff previously where we start to clump kind of interactions together so the player performs one interaction but you gain the benefits of everything within you know a localized space um we've also managed things like how much ammo is in the environment directly factors into your accuracy imagine that you were a player that just fired off shots willy-nilly you know you hadn't you, you just didn't care about if you landed them or not because the system is dynamically going to give you that ammo back, much like Resident Evil does. You know, you kill an enemy with two bullets, they'll give you four back or something to that kind of effect. But imagine a player that is completely inaccurate, allows all of those enemies to just scatter tons of bullets in the environment. Their accuracy no no longer matters because they know that they're going to get the the ammo system to kind of feed them back, you know, those ammo those bullets anyway so mm. you know you, you can kind of game the system in some cases so it's kind of managing what the player has in their inventory and their accuracy and also what's in the environment to make sure that you're not overcompensating for you know players poor skill is there like received wisdom around that is it so different on a game-to-game basis that you're you're basically having to solve this problem anew or or do you have you found that the industry is sort of a, you know agreed on a couple of kind of core principles of this like where how, how does how do things happen like with regards to that yes yeah, so, so scarcity in this case i would say is a spectrum of you know call of duty where normally you don't really care about ammo to 
The Last of Us, where every bullet kind of matters. So, that, so that's you know, it, it's kind of like yeah. where where do you sit on that kind of spectrum? First and foremost, the second part is in terms of received wisdom. You know, if I was to go a little bit harder on Dead Island Two. Dead Island 2 feels like, at least in the ammo resource kind of management, a game that's almost two generations out of date in the sense that staring at the ground and spamming the interaction button is something that we left behind at The Division. And at The Division, you could collect multiple sets of ammo that would dynamically cater to what the player needed. You didn't need to stare at the ground because the UI comes up to the horizon of the player. So the player doesn't have to mm. tilt the camera down. The UI comes up to the horizon of the player. And uh, and the, huh. the biggest um, kind of compliment for that was is that that kind of stuff started to appear in Call of Duty. So bear in mind that, you know, the Division's a third-person game, but those kind of features started to appear in Call of Duty as well. And when you're playing, you know, even things like Borderlands has, has kind of improved it since. But it's just a... There is received wisdom out there. I think it's just a case of whether people are taking mm. that wisdom on. And, you know, in that particular case, huh. it, 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 they yeah, probably yeah. haven't. Can you remember the last time you played a game that you didn't work on where you felt like, holy shit, that's a, that's a great solution? Oh, that that's a really good question that I probably don't have an answer kind of off the cuff. But um, Right, right. I guess, the ping, I guess ping in Apex Legends is kind of that. Jamie? P- yeah, P- Ping's a good one. The funny thing about the Ping was is that uh, around that time when we were working on Hood, we used to have silent playtests, which were everybody goes in a playtest, but nobody speaks. And we didn't have a <laughs> communication system in the game. And it was roughly about that same week or that same time that Apex was announced. And everybody said, oh, they've got this really cool Ping system. And basically we just said, okay, we'll just try and, you know, leech as much of that as kind of as possible. Because at the time, that that, that, that was the standard. And that's the other thing about design as well is it, it's, it's almost like magpie design in some cases. You just take, take from other games, take from the best. You know, if you're going to make a platformer, why would you think you're going to make something better than Mario? Tr- try and get a fraction of the way to Mario kind of first because, you know, the, the amount of wisdom and kind of knowledge that Nintendo will have, if you got 60% of the way there, you've done pretty well, you know, kind of thing. Mm. Uh, again, I'm really appreciating the Mario references here. We're really speaking to me <laughs> on my level, Jamie, so I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, Matthew, would you like to take this next question? Yes. How do you deal with something considered underpowered or overpowered yeah so, so, so again all of these are common problems um the, the the easy answer for this is if it's overpowered just just leave it alone uh, generally speaking you'll get so many people kind of online you know mortal kombat's just released recently you got street fighter will complain about a character being too overpowered that is until somebody finds out what the kryptonite for that particular play style is or somebody abuses it kind of too much the flip side though is if something's underpowered, people tend to, you know, buff it or improve it beyond what it should be, you know, re- relatively speaking, to the point of where people start to use it. So if something's underpowered, b- bump it up to a, to the point where people are exclusively going to use that thing in particular. And then you might also find that that might balance out the rest of the game. But a classic example of this is um, in uh, in one game, I think this was Mortal Kombat from years ago, they started to nerf a whole bunch of characters in the game. And much to that thing you asked earlier about, you know, something that wasn't really mentioned, one of the characters in Mortal Kombat, he slowly but surely got small incremental buffs. Instead of one giant buff, he got small incremental ones. And because all of these overpowered characters 
got nerfed and they were really poor and people were complaining about them, this character that got slowly but surely kind of improved ended up being the de facto best character in the entire game uh, th- by by secret because nobody ever realized that that stuff happened. And it's the same in Overwatch. The first week of Overwatch, everybody's complaining about the robot. Is, is it Bastion? I think it is. Until they found out like what the you know the harsh kind of kryptonite for that was, if if they'd have followed what the community had have said, they would have nerfed that character, you know, removed his damage, his fire rate, whatever it may be, and instead they just waited the, for the community to recognize like what the kryptonite for that thing was, and the approach for this is sometimes doing nothing is also a good option, and I think Capcom have already announced that for Street Fighter they are not going to change the balance of any of the characters in Street Fighter 6 for the next year or so. And that is also a valid kind of approach to this as well, which is let the community decide after a prolonged amount of time. And also we are communicating that to them. You know, we're going to leave it alone for 12 months, so please don't complain. It's it's really oh. interesting, actually, because um, there's uh, an ability in Destiny called Well of Radiance that I think for years and years has basically what it does is it creates like a kind of aoe healing effect and so when you're doing some of the tougher raids you just get a load of players stand in it and basically shoot at something and it just keeps everyone alive it's super useful it's it's basically essential i don't i don't think any of the raids are finished would actually we'd have actually got there without it um but three weeks ago i saw there were stories popping up they were um looking at nerfing it but for years and years that seems to have stood as something overpowered but i guess it was probably quietly decided within bungie that it's better for the game to keep it as it was than mess with it um which maybe speaks to your point there jamie so um do you also think about behaviors in a similar sense like if someone has a cheesy tactic that works like in a lot of stealth games you can find a a trick that works that if if you're just patient and you repeat it you can kind of like one by one remove guards or whatever that's technically kind of overpowered in that it lets you maybe kind of get around the the, the problem do designers like do you do you think about those kind of behaviors in the same way that you might think about like an overpowered move or an overpowered yeah definitely i mean the few examples i've got for this is that 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 seems to be how in overwatch they target specific play styles by introducing a new character that counteracts you know maybe what the meta is or you know the abusive kind of sneaking up on people tactic or whatever else it may be so that that that's one way the, right. the, the thing that always bugs me in games you mentioned about the you know the stealth example in, in horizon the dlc did this uh forbidden west so the stealth one is in batman you could run through the entire game of the original with the x-ray mode on and then in the second game, they actively introduced an enemy that kind of counteracts that behavior. So you have to kind of think more on your feet and, you know, you're not always reliant on that thing. So I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff, but I'm not a big fan of kind of brute mm. forcing it. And I think that's how it feels with Horizon Forbidden West, where the end of the game, spoiler alert, is that, you know, there's a, a, a pterodactyl. You can fly it all around the world. You can get all these nice vistas. It feels really good. The first thing that they do in the DLC is they slam the brakes on and say, please stop using that thing that you got at the end of the game. And that's a really, to me, it's more of a ham-fisted way of kind of curbing player behavior. But in that particular case, somebody might have sank 20 hours into the game to get this mount that allows them to cross the world much faster. And then the DLC 
you know, puts a red light on that straight away, which is not great. Mm. Mm. Oh, okay, so we come to the cursed design problem section here, <laughs> uh, Jamie. So design challenges that typically lead to innovation or exploration of unforeseen possibilities. There is not necessarily a consensus on how best to approach them. There's some really, uh, really fun questions here. So, Matthew, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. How do you solve a problem like Superman? Yeah. So uh, you know, I, I was I was interested here what your kind of thoughts. You know, if, if both of you have played games that had featured Superman or any kind of overpowered character. And the quick caveat with this is, when you think of something like the Mandalorian, it's a guy who travels around the galaxy. Kind of you know, he gets a companion, he grows his armor, he gets a bigger army, he visits new places and stuff. That's a classic kind of hero's journey. You know, in, in games, and it's perfectly suited for games. Superman, he can fly. His 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 ability is that he's physically invincible, so he can't he can't be killed. He's got laser eyes. He's got super strength. He can freeze people. It, you know, yeah. he basically he is anti-game design. I'm just wondering. You know, I've got a few notes here myself, but what your thoughts are as to how that kind of approach Ooh. is taken? Can I go first, Matthew? Can I wait? Oh, you go first. <laughs> yeah, you'll probably. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a few thoughts on this. So Lego Batman 2 had its own way of dealing with this, which I think is one solution, which is you have Superman as just one character as part of a team, and you have only some sections where you play as Superman, and you have, you get to experience that power differential in little bursts, and, it, and it's exciting, and it kind of punctuates other moments of the game. So that's one thing you can do. You can do a cop-out scenario where... Basically, Superman has some kind of kryptonite um, condition throughout the game where maybe he is very slowly accumulating power as he heals from this condition. And then you end with the big moment of Superman has his full power set back and you get to enjoy those powers in like a, I guess, like a low stakes um, post game um, situation where you can just you know beat up enemies fly across the environment super quickly that sort yep. of thing uh, but those are pretty much my only two real thoughts on it um, mm. but Matthew what about you yeah I mean I, I, not an example that, that's been done that I, I don't think but um, I think with Superman you have to think about his value system and actually what what concerns an invincible man isn't what happens to him it's what happens to people in the world it's it's what happens to people who, who you're rescuing off you know I would say a good Superman game in the same way of a good Superman set piece in the films would probably revolve around problem solving and saving people and loss of life is the fail state. Mm, That's interesting. More than the satisfaction of fighting. Like a combat game, you'd always have to kind of like apply either like bogus conditions to Superman or like an army of kryptonite robots, which I think is pretty much what people have done in the past (laughs) with Superman games. But at the same time, I can't really imagine like a rescuing game with not feeling quite like almost like edutainment or a bit like a bit naff exactly how do we do jamie who gets a who gets a b minus who gets a c plus etc <laughs> no, no I, I think i think i think both of those are great in in general because you know the other thing that i didn't chat about is that uh, he, he creates a real technical kind of problem as well which is the draw distance of the world and how fast he can fly and how much you right. can see that that's that's a you know N64 fog. That is the exactly solution. N64 fog and lots of rings. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 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 the, <laughs> yeah. the the approach that I also like, um, and it's you know it's not out yet, obviously. But the new Suicide Squad game, which is you don't do any of the you know the superhero kind of fantasy, and you actually do the opposite, which is it's a one versus many scenario. So Superman is the bad guy, 
and you are a group trying to take Superman down. And then that way you don't ha- have to artificially kind of nerf him or restrict his abilities. It's just that he's not a playable character in that scenario. But all of those are pretty cool. Mm. They're good, good, mm. good choices. Yeah. I am looking forward to... I'm not, like, whatever's happening at the Suicide Squad, the central hook of, like, bringing down those, like, icons, I think is a good yeah. one. Yeah. I think, like, I reckon that when it reemerges, they'll probably show off a part of the game that maybe sells it in a different light than shoot some weak spots and it will and people will get on board that's that's a 2024 prediction though matthew so save that for a few <laughs> um okay uh what's this next one now, how to provide rapid transportation but minimize taking the player out of the experience uh yeah. explain this one jamie Yes, a little bit of context. So th- this has been a personal bugbear for a long time because I've worked on a lot of open world games. So typically, in most open world games, you you go to the towers, you unlock a bunch of icons that allow you to fast travel, you play through the game, you end up having a map with so many icons or things to do that it's not worth traveling across the land again. So therefore, you start rapid teleporting. And you know, a lot of people do that to get 100% on games as well. But the thing that bugs me is the majority of the time people spend in the menus to effectively get from A to B. You know, why, why can't you get from A to B faster in the game without taking them out of the experience? So one example that comes to mind mm. is, you know, in Spider-Man, some people like using the web sling in Spider-Man. It's a little bit slower than going on the map. But because it feels so satisfying that people do it, and it remains to be seen with the second one, you know, with the bigger city and how much further you have to travel. But that's my kind of question here to you is, you know, how how you think games have dealt with getting from A to B quickly, but not taking the player out of the experience. Oh, well, it's funny because you know Starfield just came out, and Starfield is a whole game of going into menus and selecting fast travel points, basically. And yep. it's probably the most contentious element of that game. I don't know if I know the solution to this. It's always think like you say, maybe it's the having the right sort of traversal, traversal based powers that make you excited about using those powers and navigating the world as Spider-Man did. I feel like I never really used the fast travel in Spider-Man until I got to the ticking things off for a hundred percent phase of that game towards the end. And um, yeah. they've made a point as well now of actually talking up the fast travel system because it loads so quickly on yeah. ps5 because of the ssd obviously that it's it's actually like seen as a as a plus because uh, they're, they're selling it as you know you're in the you're only you're fast traveling so it's so quickly it's almost like it's almost too fast and that's it that's its own sort of like um i guess um take on the problem but the idea is that the process is so short you don't even think about doing it um while you're doing it so i don't know i mean there's part of me that wonders could you do something like you, you sort of um point at the horizon line and you maybe you press a button and then you get like a a list of like uh sort of hot spots on the map and then you select within the in-game ui okay i want to go to this place and it tells you how many meters away you are from that place and so yeah. you're you're selecting a bunch of um locations but you're never actually leaving the game and going into a menu that's that's maybe one solution i can think of maybe that relates to mm-hmm. You know, the kind of like the tower thing we were talking earlier. These are the towers you've been to. These are the ones you can fast travel to. And you're just selecting them from that in-game interface. That's pretty much the only solution I can really think of for this. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult. I mean, maybe trying to tackle it from a, like eliminating the desire for fast travel, which is probably even harder of making something that's so compelling, yeah. which is kind of the Spider-Man thing of like, it just feels so nice. But I guess like the, the two... 
the two kind of curves you're kind of dealing with is kind of like how quickly you get bored of like a location because that's often what does it for me is it's more like oh i just sick of this place and i just want to get there super fast and but also having like your navigation developing like spider-man i feel like those two curves are quite evenly matched which is why you don't like travel i i didn't start really fast traveling much until like like samuel like right at the end mopping up stuff because i felt like you know spider-man was evolving to always kind of like replace the boredom that i was maybe developing at the setting being the same over and over again but um Hmm. not everyone has a spider-man or something as dynamic as that um i have one other thought on this actually as well which is that you introduce, I guess the pterodactyl in Horizon is sort of an example of this, but you introduce a post-game, like basically game-breaking form of transportation that's so fast and so fun, you actually want to use it <laughs> and not use fast travel because you have this new toy that the game has given you to mop up the rest of the things in the game. So, yeah, uh, those are, yeah. It is difficult, that, that relationship, though, of, like, when you give someone a like a a a big a tool which really changes like the like the pterodactyl yeah. like all of a sudden all of those navigation problems any navigation puzzle you haven't solved is basically nuked all at once and like maintain like i always i often find that, like there's so many games i've played where they've just done something where i'm like uh oh, well i'm not really interested in this anymore like this this thing was just too powerful or or kind of why would i do any of these things actually for me often it's it's the end boss like once i finished a story i'm like well any power i'm developing narratively was to take down this thing like it's why i won't like why i'm I'm not like powering through to the end of tears of the kingdom because i think once i've beaten ganon it's gonna be like well i don't need to do anything else because there's nothing worse in this world than ganon (laughs) you know yeah Mm. and it's it's the availability of that as well i mean the only other ones that i had that come to mind is um you know one is one is making the world smaller so you know yakuza kind of style you do, you do everything <laughs> on foot um another one is i've not played this too much but apparently uh you you guys will probably know more than me that death stranding the more you play the game the more connections you can make in the world with other players and create zipline kind of routes and that's another way if, is yeah, it's yeah. kind of the dif- divide and conquer approach the world is too big to take on on your own in terms of fast travel but everybody works together and creates a network of stuff that makes things kind of faster you know that's interesting yeah hmm. that is great in death stranding but then that's i would say that's like that's death stranding's kind of whole deal is that that is its one big good really good yeah. idea and then there's lots of like weird shit around it, um, <laughs> but I do. But I, but fun, you know, fundamentally, it's a it's a game about building infrastructure um, that he disguised as as something a lot weirder. Um, hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm enjoying the scenario of us being uh, asked to be uh, backseat game designers, uh, Jamie. That's uh, <laughs> that's good fun. So, hope our rapid transportation ideas there at least uh, at least flicked um, something on for you. But uh, yeah. Um, okay. Cool. So this next one. How do you reintegrate or re-engage lapsed players? What's the? This is a very broad one. Yeah, so, so very specifically, this comes back to a time when I was playing Wind Waker a lot of years ago, and I I left the boat out in the ocean somewhere. Uh, I saved the game, put the game down, and I come back maybe twelve months or so kind of later, 
with no context as to where I was, what I was kind of doing next. The game's not really signposting very well what my next objective is. And you spend a whole bunch of time not only kind of trying to figure out what you were trying to do, but in some cases fighting controls that you had muscle memory of, you know, maybe six months prior or wherever it may be. And, uh, I mean, Fortnite is a good one at the moment where they use bots. So if you come back to the game in a new season, or you've not been on it for a while, they'll put you in a game of bots. So basically you have a higher chance of learning the game and winning, you know, chicken dinner or wherever it may be. But yeah, it, what what either of your takes are on <laughs> if you've not played a game in a long time oh. and then you come back to it. Yeah. Sorry, I, go on. I restart a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like there's some games where I'm like, fuck it. I, I actually, I, I'll weigh up and go, I'm so confused and do I think I'm ever going to be able to work it out and I've restarted some like substantial RPGs from the start because I'm like nah I'm, I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna enjoy this unless unless I've unless I do it from the beginning yeah. which isn't a solution no but. I'm the same Matthew I've done you know God of War 2018 I started it three times until I finally cracked it I got to the same relatively the same point which is when they start uh when they go into that elf realm i fact, towards the end of that elf realm i got to that point twice and then only only on the next playthrough did i keep going and i'm glad i did because the game actually gets better from there um but also final fantasy 9 is one i've played 10 hours of i think seven <laughs> times now um i always get to the same point if you add that up that's a whole <laughs> campaign of final exactly fantasy it's a big waste of time I, I think like the so i guess jamie there are, there are there are two layers to this so if we're talking yep. about a narrative based game there is a catching you up on the story element that is actually unrelated to the gameplay so totally. um i i have seen some games try a kind of tv show style previously on function which i think actually is a really good solution to this just to reorient you in the story and then maybe by doing that um you you will feel comfortable slipping back into the game board generally um, when it comes to something that's like purely mechanic space like a multiplayer game i do think that yeah your fortnite is a good solution when uh, thing is i always think that when you re-engage it with a multiplayer game the part of the excitement is discovering what has changed since you were gone but also there is an element of distress with that where you're like oh they've they've added crafting to apex legends they've cycled out this map that i i like and understand this weapon i used to get is now like a gold weapon i can only get at certain times and it can be quite daunting um so yeah, and I, I suppose like the yeah, putting you up against bots or easy players kind of is the, is the way to do it. I think actually in, in Apex's case, I really feel a hand, an invisible hand at work that is allowing me to have a few easy games before it chucks me back into the deep end, and then I'm basically being, I'm basically, <laughs> I'm basically cannon fodder for some yep. twenty year old fucking Twitch streamer. Um, just that's <laughs> essentially my function in that game. So. Yeah, uh, I, just some vague thoughts there. Matthew, I don't know if you have anything to add. but I love the idea. You're just meat for someone else's grinder. It, it really feels like that, but yeah. Um, Matthew, anything more to add? Uh, yeah, I mean, short of like incredibly basic bitch ideas, like, you know, having you know, tutorials you can return to or like an area you know like a practice area or a fight or a combat area you know like I've, I've definitely games that i've bounced off of for leaving too long are often like quite advanced action games like the platinum games for example where you come back and you're like how the fuck does bayonetta work like i don't <laughs> yeah, get yeah. this but then they often have a space that you can go to with bayonetta to like like fuck around in and, and just like f- you know find that muscle memory again there um but that's like 
that feels like the most obvious shit well, in the world. Like, uh, and here's, an, here's the tutorial area again that you can come back to. I think the idea of like the game detecting all oh, your last save files from two years ago, would you like us to turn tooltips back on? That is exactly. not actually a bad shout, Matthew. So, yeah, yeah, I quite like that. Mm. Uh, Jamie, your take. No, I mean, I mean, all of those are good. That that last one that you just mentioned is exactly the type of thing I've been thinking of kind of recently is what, why does the game not kind of entice you or not recognize what you've been doing? And I, I, I don't know how well it's been integrated, but I think that's partially what the platform feature on PlayStation is trying to do. You know, the activity cards, if you hover on the game, it says you're 90% of the way to the, you know, the boss or whatever it may be. Click this button. We will teleport you straight there. It doesn't solve the muscle memory with controls, but the thing you mentioned about a tutorial area, that's kind of perfect. You know, a bunch of games have shooting ranges in Call of Duty, Sekiro, you can go fight that guy, mm. you know, the undead kind of guy. So so all of that stuff's kind of valid, but it's it's just a, one of those where you come back to a game, and, and I should say all of these cursed problems, some people may think that these are not necessarily problems, so it's up to the you know the team if they want to kind of take this stuff yeah. on. But all of those are kind of valid, you know, regardless of how you know simple they may be. It's quite an interesting thing that's sort of slightly adjacent to this and relevant right now is that uh, Cyberpunk 2077 has obviously had this huge update where they've basically changed their whole perk system. So like your character build, if you, and in the past, I think. Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but when when they've done big changes, maybe to The Witcher Three, sometimes like your old saves just aren't compatible anymore, and they're like you have to play, you know, any save going forward will be in this new version, and it doesn't work with this old version of the game, and that yeah. makes sense. But here they they don't do that. If you go in with your end game save, say you play seventy hours at launch, if you go in now, it basically says we've refunded you all of your ability points like a game's worth of ability points to put into this perk tree so that you can just like build your character and actually like it's cool that it works but i think it's probably like one of the worst things about this new update in that it's asking you to like basically fast forward through the whole power curve of a game that you've not experienced (laughs) in its new form you're like I don't know which of these perks go together because I need to start with the low-level perks, get a feel for that character, and then start building them out and start fixing them with other decisions. And you're basically, you know, it's you know, it literally says make buy fifty abilities at once, <laughs> and you're like, I have what the fuck yeah, am I yeah. to do with that? Like it's 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 kind of insane, but I can also understand why they've like that they want to give you that freedom. It's uh, like that must have given them some like major headaches. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, we come to the final cursed design problem here, Jamie. Yes. Uh, Matthew, do you want to read this one out? How can we make player health more meaningful and have lef- less reliance on passive regen? Yeah. Mm. So this is, I mean, when you think about the top first-person shooters, I mean, even Halo, yeah, you know, with the shield kind of regen, Call of Duty, that for the best part of the last 20 years the way that you regain health and it's the way that you know when when you said earlier ingrained kind of knowledge or things that people rely on the best way to get your health back in the top first person games in the world is to go stand behind a rock for five seconds and i'm kind of like Mm. why has that something not been addressed for the best part of 20 years and whenever somebody comes up with a new idea for what the new norm kind of becomes that, that you know I wouldn't say there'd be a millionaire, but they'll they'll kind of set a new standard. But at the same time, 
working on Call of Duty, they used to say that that was a really important part of the pacing of the game, which is you pop out, shoot some enemies, you take a couple of shots, you reload your gun, which which is a natural kind of break from combat, and you hide behind cover, and during that short window, you know, you get your kind of health back. But for me, it's more the passive kind of aspect of you know, effectively standing behind a rock for five seconds. So what? what's your thoughts? Mm. Okay, I have a take on this. Uh, if that's okay, oh, Matthew. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I yeah. think that Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal solved oh, this really well. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I think the idea that, like, basically it's that, you know, there's that Resi-style shoot-and-do-a-melee attack thing where you draw health from an enemy doing it that way. I'm not necessarily saying it needs to be a melee attack, but... It's the idea of performing a specific action, fulfilling a specific parameter, and you getting some kind of health bonus or boost from performing that action. Yeah. Therefore, the action continues and you don't have that break in service. Um, Matthew, you're going to say the same thing? Yeah, yeah. I like. I, I think of all the, the shooters I've played in the last you know, 10 years, Doom was the one where I felt, oh, this rhythm's like pulling you into a different style of play. Like this is an anti-cover shooter. It's about like getting up in people's faces, and it it forces it forces constant engagement in a way that I was like, I, I thought this, that, I thought that that was like pretty genius. I think I, th- I think Doom Eternal, the way it like up those stakes even further by like throwing like more ammo types and things like that into the mix to kind of like pull you around the full arsenal as well. I I, I thought that was. That felt like something genuinely new was happening. Yeah. I, one thing I will add to that, though, I suppose, is that there is another pacing element at play, specifically with Doom, which is you have this like three waves of enemy that are pause um, pacing yeah, element yeah. to it, which is maybe maybe not necessarily applicable to all games right. in the same way. So no, no, yeah, it, but um, that's the thing. It did. Yeah, it felt distinct to that. I, I'm not saying like oh every game you need to sap health from the thing you kill yeah uh yeah, well, yeah. yeah i suppose uh jamie what do you what do you think of that and um as a as a an existing solution to that what do you think of it that's it i mean it's the same with all of these things which are the there is no one size fits all solution because for example i, c- I couldn't see call of duty doing the push forward into the battlefield of you know world war Two to collect you know health so then it becomes an experience kind of thing you know the top down stuff we mentioned earlier it's the experience is a gritty realistic kind of scenario so so it wouldn't necessarily suit there at the same time it it's it's supposed it's a player specific kind of fantasy because the one that comes to mind for me is is bloodborne you take the damage and the way you regain the damage is by being aggressive but uh on that point I Bloodborne is the least favorite of mine in terms of the Bloodborne games, in terms of the Soulsborne games, for exactly that reason, which oh. is it's it's overly aggressive for somebody who normally likes the turtle kind of behind a shield. The the Doom example is probably a bit too arcadey for something like a Call of Duty to kind of integrate. So there is no, yeah, yeah. you know, there's no middle ground. But these are the types of things that people kind of will debate over for months and then eventually we'll just say let's just do what call of duty does you know that that's ultimately the way it kind of normally happens actually to to give um you know i I wasn't just dunking on cyberpunk talking about its mad perk buyback thing but um one thing that i do like about the new perk trees that they've added in this this 2.2.0 update it acknowledges that you that a, that a valid play style is that kind of doom kind of constantly yeah. moving 
not going in cover, not recovering. And there are perks that kind of like make you harder to hit when you're sprinting and things like that. Like there's, it's not so much how it's doing health regen, but it it kind of like rewards you with some invulnerability for momentum and speed. And that, you know, that, that sort of seems like a part of the same kind of question in a way. Like it's, it's, it's dealing with damage rather than health. But I, I thought that was, that was quite novel. Also, interestingly, that was a game which before 2.0 had health packs. You know, it, it was a finite yeah, yeah. resource. You'd pick up, you'd have 70 med packs. Now health is, a, is an item with, with two charges on a timer. So it basically is the you know it, it's not hide behind a rock and it'll come back in five seconds you know the cooldown's much longer than that but it is a a, a, a like a reliable but limited resource that you can rely mm. on can yeah. you um so like matthew can you unlock anything to hasten the process have they done anything like that like mul- yeah 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 well like like the nature of the health item you have equipped like better health items will will move faster or recharge faster there are like other perks or there are cyber where you can build a you can have a build which is focused on like health regeneration over anything yeah. else so like but that's quite uh, that's quite nerdy and rpg-ish mm. um, well, you say that but actually like when looking at this question it made me think again of apex legends which does does also have health as an item you have choices you make as a player, whether you use a small health item or a large one. Yeah, it takes the more time to use a large one. Yeah, absolutely. And then, but there's also there are also factors that can affect how how impactful those items are. You can get a specific backpack, for example. I think it is that allows you to use the the small ones, but they they produce they they are I think like twice as powerful. So you just are, are popping these small ones really quickly and restoring your health incredibly quickly. So it is making you think about how you get your health back in a way that maybe Call of Duty doesn't, where you're just hiding behind cover. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. It, so there are, I guess, like Matthew, it's not necessarily just an RPG way of thinking. It, it sounds like she was yes, a thought about this yeah. as well. But um, Jamie, your thoughts? No, all of those are good. As I say, that the, the uh, that's the one I was going to mention, kind of just to finish it off, is just about the you know the Fortnite kind of battle royale style, which is a. Uh, yeah, the, the the health is a meaningful choice and actually is a really important part of the game because without the health, you've lost the, you know, the core objective of the game, which is survival. The the interaction time, you know, I think Fortnite does it with with fish. If you go fishing, which is a small mini game, some of the best items are in that for the the time to kind of health benefits that that you get in this particular you know kind of scenario, but um. But, you know, just to kind of sum up those kind of cursed and common things is just that some of those are the types of curveballs that you might be thrown in kind of design kind of interviews as well. And it can spurn off entire kind of discussions like this for, you know, hours in, in kind of meeting rooms and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, if, if, if you're both in the interview room, you're both hired. Lots of good ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Now I've just got to learn how to how to do literally any other part of game design. Uh, <laughs> if I can do that, be well. I'm going to be a creative director. I'm just going to walk in, <laughs> Indiana Jones, say the good ideas, and get the fuck out. Of it. Indiana Jones hat. See you later. I'm good for lunch. Uh, okay. Well, that's great. I mean, uh, Jamie, so much effort you've put into planning this episode. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been no great problem. to have you. Um, oh, this is this has genuinely been so much fun. 
This has been like the most fun I've had doing one of these episodes in ages. Oh, nice. That's great. Yeah, top five episode, I think, for sure. So, uh, yeah, really grateful to have you. And uh, would love to have you back to talk more about games that you like at some point, too. That'd be cool if you fancy it. So, um, Perfect. yeah. Where can uh, people find you on social media, Jamie? Yeah, again, th- thanks very much for having me both. I've, I've absolutely loved it myself. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm on t- Twitter or wherever that kind of dumpster is now, um, at, at Smithstock. <laughs> um, so S-M-I-T-H-S-T-0-C-K, uh, because somebody from the NHS has stolen the O. <laughs> <laughs> You can't be mad when they're from the NHS, I guess. Exactly, but, uh... they've got they've got a better reason for that. But yeah, it's the, it's the same on uh, Blue Sky and the other services uh, at Smithstock. Awesome. Uh, the podcast you can follow at BackpagePod on Twitter and Blue Sky now as well. Um, you can support us on Patreon.com/slash/BackpagePod if you like the work we do. And you want to chuck some money our way? Two tiers there, including a tier with extra podcasts in it. Matthew, where can people find you? Uh, at Mr Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W Roberts on Twitter and Blue Sky. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.